thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon for a roundtable discussion with uh, distinguished scholars and uh, thought leaders, either from countries in Central and Eastern Europe or very familiar with countries in Central and Eastern Europe. My name is Marion Smith, and I'm executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And so you'll allow me, I hope, uh, to try and put us all in the shoes of one group of people in Crimea in whose future, whose future is now uncertain and whose horrible history is at the forefront of their minds. The Crimean Tatars endured terrible atrocities at the hands of the Soviet Union, including forced deportations. Beginning in the 1940s, hundreds of thousands of Tatars were deported away from their medieval home on the Black Sea to the barren steppes of Central Asia. Soviet soldiers unexpectedly knocked on front doors. Families were given 20 minutes to pack up their lives before they were crowded onto trains headed east. Those who survived the forced ride were pushed out of the rail cars onto a cold, unknown terrain and left to survive as best they could. Over 100,000 Crimean Tatars died as a direct result of Soviet policy in Crimea nearly half of all those deported. Today, the descendants of those Tatars who remain and those who return to the Crimean Peninsula make up about 12% of the population. And we have reports that this week, a number of Crimean Tatars have had their passports confiscated ahead of Sunday's referendum, in which the Tatar population will undoubtedly be voting against joining Russia. Of course, the Crimean Tatars are not the only people in the former Soviet space who have suffered terribly under Soviet communism. They are also not the only people who are making comparisons between Soviet aggression of the past and Vladimir Putin's current attempts to dominate the region. Ukrainians, of course, recall the terrible man-made famine, Holodomor, in which millions of people in Ukraine starved to death as the result of Soviet agricultural policy. I found it significant that in the protest in Ukraine last month, a number of surviving statues of Vladimir Lenin and a number of uh, Soviet stars on public and government buildings were stripped off. To their minds, at least, the removal of Soviet-era symbols was linked to a rejection of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Of course, Putin is not motivated by communist ideology. Indeed, he appears not to be an ideologue at all. Putin craves power, and he knows how to wield it. He has rolled back democratic reforms in Russia and vanquished political opposition. He has also whitewashed the Soviet Union's bloody legacy and the crimes of Soviet leaders. In an attempt to build his modern Russia, upon the historical narrative of a great Russia done wrong by the West. The collapse of the Soviet Union was, in Putin's words, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, a disaster for which he blamed, largely, the United States. And yes, the US did play a part. Tens of thousands of American soldiers died fighting the Soviet Union and its allies. Happily, in 1989, communism collapsed in Europe, and the captive nations became free. A few years later, the Soviet empire was no more. 
One consequence of the Soviet Union's dissolution was the establishment of a free and independent Ukraine. Putin has never come to terms with this reality and does not mean for Ukrainians in the 21st century to live free of dependence on Moscow. Putin has now forced the issue and openly challenged the independent future of Ukraine. And so, here we are to discuss what this crisis means for the countries of Central Eastern Europe, and in particular, the future of security cooperation in the region. And we have a wonderful panel of experts with us, and I'm just going to be very brief in, uh, in, in, in identifying them, and then we're each going to have about 10 minutes to present, and then we will try to make it highly interactive, uh, both on the panel, among the panelists, and engaging you, the audience. I realize this is the panel after lunch, and so one of my key responsibilities is to keep us all awake. <laughs> we have on my left uh, Tamás Felegi, who is a former minister of the go government of Hungary. He's also president and CEO of the Hungary Initiatives Foundation here in Washington, and a managing partner at Euro-Atlantic Solutions, an international consulting firm. We have Janusz Bugowski, who is a Washington-based foreign policy analyst and a senior associate in the European program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We have Vladimir Karamuza, who is a senior advisor at the Institute for Modern Russia. And I attended an, an event just a couple of weeks ago, I think the week before um, things really broke out in, in Ukraine, in which he hosted uh, Vladimir Bukovsky, who gave what at the, at the time, uh, even mid-February, seemed to be almost uh, somewhat unreasonable uh, criticisms of Putin. And it was amazing in the, in the last few weeks how so much of that has come true. We also have Irina uh, Halupa, who is a former director of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's Ukrainian service. We also have uh, Bart Novak. Uh, and he is a fellow, at, a transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund here from uh, Poland. He has advised uh, Polish members of parliament and the European parliament. He has a PhD in economics. And also uh, we're joined finally by Wes Mitchell, who is president and co-founder of the Center for European Policy Analysis here in Washington, uh, a very fast-growing uh, think tank, uh, very well respected here in Washington and in governments in, in Europe. So I will, uh, without further ado, turn it over to uh, Tomasz Felagy. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's really a, a, uh, an honor to uh, participate uh, in this panel. And let me add one more uh, thing to my uh, CV uh, as, uh, as probably an, an interesting addition, that as a minister, I had the, um, the opportunity to chair the uh, Hungarian-Russian and the Hungarian-Ukrainian bilateral economic uh, committees. So I had uh, a first-hand experience uh, negotiating and dealing with uh, the biggest uh, companies as well as uh, senior government officials in these two countries. Uh, we heard plenty of, uh, of um, arguments and interpretations today about uh, what happened, what's going on, and what will happen uh, in, in Ukraine and what sort of... Uh, political, economic, and other ramifications uh, we, can, um, we can calculate with for the future. Uh, and uh, the purpose of this panel, and I, I try to concentrate on, on these aspects, is to link in uh, the uh, Central European countries, and certainly in my case it would be Hungary, 
which is the strongest uh, link. Uh, but at the same time, I would, uh, I would like to, to make some general comments and remarks uh, about the situation. First of all, uh, from the point of view of a small Central European country like Hungary, it is very important to, uh, to make the point that uh, during the past years, very mixed messages uh, came out of the, uh, of the West, from the U.S. and Western Europe, how the uh, Western governments reacted to different crisis situations in the world, be it Libya, Syria, Iran, or this, this time Ukraine. So the, the kind of mixed messages which, uh, which made it very clear to these countries that the West is not as united as you might expect, and the West has, um, has very diverged uh, economic, political, and sometimes military security interests, which may block uh, unified action, which may block um, uh, really uh, effective political action on, on their side. So that's, uh, that's an important starting point for, uh, for, for smaller countries who, uh, who don't have the resources, don't have the opportunity to, uh, to influence directly uh, these events. Uh, it is, to me, it seems uh, to be the case, uh, and I, I think uh, uh, most of you would agree with this, that we are either back, actually, or very close to be back to the traditional Cold War logic. And not necessarily the Cold War itself, because uh, this is a different uh, uh, political setup, but, uh, but the kind of, uh, of Cold War-like situation in which uh, on the one side of the conflict we, we see the United States and Western Europe or the Western powers, and on the other, other, on the other side Russia, which is obviously the successor to the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, the other factor here which, uh, which gives us again the kind of feeling that we are back to the Cold War uh, logic, at least, is that on the one side, uh, there are countries of democratic nature and democratic governance and, uh, and uh, representing the kind of uh, liberal democratic uh, ideals that, uh, that we have seen for, for a couple of hundreds of years in uh, Northern America and Europe. And on the other side of the conflict, uh, you find uh, countries, governments that are, to say the least, uh, not so democratic or even undemocratic or specifically non-democratic. So this is, again, the kind of resemblance uh, to, the, uh, to the kind of division that we had uh, for, for almost 50 years in, um, in, in Europe and across the globe. Uh, and this very obvious that, uh, that uh, um, one reason for, uh, uh, for this is that uh, we have a very different uh, concept of, uh, of uh, targets, goals, and constituencies in this political uh, international setup. Uh, we did not really uh, deal with the, uh, with the way how uh, Putin uh, might think about this, what sort of, uh, what sort of scenario he, uh, he may have, and what sort of uh, political goals he may uh, pursue in, in this uh, or similar conflicts. And I would like just make very quickly uh, a point about this, that uh, what I see uh, as, a, as an important factor here is that he has, in my understanding, four distinct uh, uh, constituencies, so to speak. 
One is, uh, of course, what we heard a lot about today, the elite itself, the economic, political, business elite uh, uh, intertwined uh, in this uh, whole setup. The importance of this to me is that uh, what we, uh, we, we have not heard today is that um, there is a very strong interaction and uh, business-wise uh, more than interaction. It's basically a, a significant overlap between the, uh, the Russian oligarchic elite and the, and the fallen Ukrainian one. So it is very, very typical that whenever you do business uh, in any sense, with one of them, you will find the other uh, elite uh, connected or interconnected into into the business. The other constituency is the home fr home front itself for for Putin, uh, the general public. When he took over power uh, almost a decade ago, um, Russia was on the decline, a very significant decline, and his job was to uh, to turn the tide. And he's managed to do that. He restored some sense of a of a Russian identity. He restored a a, a kind of big power, if not superpower, uh, status for the country. And uh, gradually, in foreign policy, you you you've seen uh, Russia appearing as a uh, even more powerful country than in the past uh, 20 years, uh, any time. Then uh, two more very relevant constituencies. I would stress. One is the, uh, the uh, Yanukovych-type leaders in other countries of the former Soviet republics. What is the message of Ukraine and the, and the, and the fate of destiny of Yanukovych and, uh, and the Russian steps uh, towards uh, protecting him or, or doing something about the consequences of his, of his, uh, of his defeat? Um, what is uh, Russia's message to other countries? I don't want to name any country, but I guess uh, you know what I mean here. And finally, um, the, uh, the Russians living in other countries, in these countries that I mentioned uh, just a, a minute ago, uh, these are the four very important uh, uh, constituencies, and it is not Eastern Europe, it is not Hungary, it is not the European Union, and it is not the United States, I think, which comes first when, when we have to uh, discuss this. The consequences, how to deal with the crisis, and what the next practical steps can be, I think it is very relevant. Uh, of course, uh, their relationship with the West. Uh, so which, to me, it, uh, there is a very significant uh, consequence coming out of this, or conclusion coming out of this, is that while we were talking about de-escalating the conflict, easing the situation. At the same time, uh, Putin's uh, strategy was very clearly creating fait accompli, uh, grabbing territories, grabbing the opportunity, using the window of opportunity while uh, we were looking for some kind of a, uh, of a, uh, of a solution to, to stop the escalation of the crisis. At the same time, we, uh, we basically could not do anything uh, letting him go beyond the point of no return. And I don't think there is any point of return for Russia from the Crimean situation. Uh, as we, as uh, we heard this morning uh, in several different ways, uh, I fully agree with the comments that uh, it's a done deal fundamentally. Um, the next point uh, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to make is, uh, is really uh, uh, what is at stake? Or what, what are the things that are at stake uh, in, the, in this conflict 
from uh, both from uh, from a very practical daily point of view and in a in a strategic sense. Uh, I think um, uh, one of the uh, questions is credibility. The credibility of the uh, of the post-communist, post-Cold War uh, uh, world order, if if I may use this term, uh, it is critical to understand uh, whether the we will be able, as we have not been able, to uh, to uh, generate uh, institutions, procedures, uh, political, legal, military, or economic institutions, procedures to um, to stop this level and this nature of aggression that we have seen uh, currently. Uh, we can, uh, we can uh, launch war on terrorism, we can launch war on, on any uh, local conflict, but uh, this is a conflict in Europe, and this is a significant difference, even though there is a huge resemblance to, uh, to the Georgian case, still it is very different, because it is, it's not the heart of Europe, but it's still Europe, and we consider Ukraine as a Western country uh, from, from our point of view, regardless of its uh, economic, socioeconomic, political development and situation, whether really uh, Ukraine qualifies for the same uh, kind of Western status as, we, as, we, uh, as we've given to ourselves of the, of the European Union 28 member states. Um, the, uh, so that the first thing is credibility, whether... Uh, there will be any uh, any credible solution and any credible way to uh, to handle this crisis, um, and credibility is extremely important because uh, because these small countries like uh, like the Central European countries have nothing uh, really else than to uh, to cooperate and base this cooperation uh, on the uh, on the support of the of the bigger Western alliance be it the European Union or NATO, the, uh, we have to do it within this framework. And I think these countries have done it. So I, uh, it's, it's not a wishful thinking, it's a fact. Uh, while at the same time, um, the very, it is very obvious that the uh, smaller countries of, uh, of the Visegrad Four uh, may have and may develop uh, diverging interests diverging from, uh, from the all-European Union interests as defined in Brussels or in Berlin or, or in a set of, uh, of uh, bigger capital cities of, of the European Union. Or even uh, among them, themselves, uh, it, it is possible that we can identify all those uh, economic, uh, political uh, elements that would create uh, differences uh, between these countries and... Um, it is, uh, I think, in the past two, three weeks, uh, it has become clear that, uh, that uh, there is no 100% uh, uh, consensus uh, between Poland and the rest of the, uh, of the, uh, of the other three countries, or, uh, or, or uh, especially when it comes to the uh, question of sanctions, nature of the sanctions and the depth of the, uh, of the uh, sanctions to be applied uh, towards Russia. Um, For uh, purely from a Hungarian point of view, I would stress uh, two two fundamental points that uh, I think relevant both in uh, in uh, in uh, everyday short term um, thinking and also long term. One is a uh, geopolitical, economic, 
therefore political question, and that is the energy issue, which is an absolute paramount uh, question for, uh, for Hungary, and I guess for the region as well. And the other is the minority issue, the ethnic Hungarian minorities living in, uh, in Ukraine, their fate, uh, the way the uh, whatever nature the new Ukraine will have. We don't know what sort of political system will emerge. We don't know what sort of political power will emerge. We don't know what results of the uh, of the uh, of the coming parliamentary elections will uh, will hold uh, for for Ukraine and for the world. So we don't know the um, the uh, the setup of the next Ukrainian parliament, uh, whether nationalistic forces will will fare well or not so well, what sort of consequences it may have for uh, for ethnic minorities other than Russians in 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 Ukraine, like Poles, Hungarians, Slovaks, and uh, so this is a very critical issue for Hungary, which is a country of 10 million. And we have uh, somewhere between 150 and 200,000 ethnic Hungarians living in uh, in in Ukraine. So for us, um, the uh, the first question is to protect these people physically, politically, culturally, and language-wise. Uh, it may sound very very strange to uh, to American ears, but not to European ears that uh, the use of your mother tongue, the use of your native language might be in question in certain countries. And that can be the case in, in, in Ukraine, where the language used, probably because they are targeting Russia and the Russian language and, uh, and uh, because of this actual conflict. Uh, but, but of course, uh, if there is a discrimination, it will not make any difference among these languages and ethnic minorities. So it will hit others uh, than the Russians as well. So that's, uh, that's a very critical question, and not just from a practical point of view, but from a, from a um, very uh, uh, principled point of view that, uh, that uh, the new Ukraine, uh, I would consider it as a, uh, as a, uh, as a failure if the new, new Ukraine would not be democratic. Uh, and would not be uh, within the uh, the framework of a constitutional democracy as we understand it, with all the differences that the Western countries, European Union members, uh, have about the uh, the interpretation of of constitutionalism, liberal democracy, and so on, and so forth. Just to remind you, uh, the debate surrounding the Hungarian constitution within the European Union. So it shows that still there is room for all kinds of different interpretations. But still, we belong to the same uh, political family in that way, and uh, it would be a, a failure for the Western alliance if we uh, if we could not get it right in this particular case. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Tomas. Uh, thank you. But before we turn it over to Janusz, uh, we're talking about a crisis here. So let's just really quickly define what we mean by crisis. It strikes me that there are three kind of immediate crises that we're dealing with here. One is the annexation of Crimea. And given the fact that there are troops in Crimea and the fact that there's a referendum on Sunday and we, we all pretty much know what the result's going to be, it's kind of a done deal. And, Tomas, you, you mentioned that as well. Uh, the other potential crisis is a military uh, incursion into eastern Ukraine. Do we agree that this is, this is part of the crisis that we're in right now? Yes? 
and, and let, me, let me just add, um, <clears throat> we shouldn't necessarily assume that Russia will completely annex Crimea de jure. They may annex it de facto right. and claim, like with South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which they've already right. done, that these are independent states. So, right. But it's still a crisis. Right. And then what about the, uh, the, the aspect of this crisis of it setting a precedent? Are we, are we all concerned about the precedent that this would set for the Baltics or Belarus or Kazakhstan? If I could add again, yes, and it also sets a precedent for Russia. Right. All right. Janusz, the floor is yours. Sure. As you probably all noticed, there is a very cold wind blowing today, and I, I was wondering as I was walking here whether it's blowing in from Siberia. <laughs> but uh, let me make two very brief initial points. Uh, first of all, I would say that the only surprise for me, at least, uh, in Moscow's attack on Ukraine in the past few weeks is that so many Western analysts and policymakers are actually surprised by what Putin has done. I mean, his actions and ambitions, I think, at least in my reading, if you read my books, have been very clear over the past 10 to 14 years. But unfortunately, too many analysts and policymakers have given him the benefit of the doubt. They've described him as a pragmatist. Uh, they've, gone out, they've gone out on a limb, bent over backwards to cooperate with him, overlooking completely what his agenda is, both within Russia in establishing an authoritarian system and in the neighborhood in establishing some kind of new imperial order. The second very brief point I want to make is it, it's not the existence, if it ever comes about, of the Eurasia Union that is a threat to the West. But as we've witnessed in Ukraine, it is attempts to establish such a Eurasia Union in countries such as Ukraine and elsewhere, that is a threat to stability in the region. And this is what I want to talk about. Stability in, particularly in Central Europe, or all, really all the countries neighboring, uh, neighboring Russia, other than Ukraine. I'm not going to go into Ukraine because I presume you've, you've covered it and uh, others will cover it, I think, uh, in a lot more detail. So let, let, me, let me just say this. In pursuit of his dominant pole of power, which is what Putin is after, pole of power, position, in other words, a Moscow-centered block, whether you call it uh, uh, Soviet Union Mark II, whether you call it Tsarist Russia Mark II, he, he, the idea is to establish some kind of new block in which Russia will be, Russia, in other words, Moscow would be predominant. Uh, and the probable annexation of Crimea, but as I've said, it may not be outright, is simply another step. It's a subsequent step after the partition of Georgia, if you remember, 2008, which was very quickly forgotten, unfortunately, by our leaders. Uh, but even the, the agreements that were signed with Sarkozy were never, were never realized, were never implemented. So Putin's moves, in a way, are, are a shock in Central Eastern Europe, but to many analysts, they're not a shock. Um, they expected something like this. They didn't expect it to happen maybe so soon, but they did expect something to happen. So very briefly, let me outline four kinds of flashpoints around Russia's borders that, that we need to be very carefully watching and not be taken by surprise in the same way that we were with Crimea. When I say we, I mean our, our leadership. First, the immediate flashpoint, beyond Ukraine that is, uh, is Transnistria in Moldova. Uh, maybe emboldened by success in Crimea with a lukewarm Western response, Putin could push for a referendum on federalization or even independence, even outright secession, annexation by Russia. And the aim, I think, here would be to quash Moldova's moves towards association agreement with the European Union, which is something that uh, was, in a way, the trigger for Putin's actions against Ukraine. Um, concurrently, and this does concern Ukraine, 
we talk about eastern Ukraine, Donetsk, Kharkiv, and so on and so forth. But there's also a strip of territory between Moldova, between Transnistria uh, and Crimea, which the uh, Russian nationalists called Novorossiya, uh, which also has a Russian population, which also could uh, be very tempting for Putin to annex or turn into some sort of autonomous region linking two territories that Russia de facto already has under control, i.e. Transnistria uh, and Moldova. So filling in the puzzle between these uh, so-called so frozen conflicts, filling in the pieces in the puzzle. The second danger, I would say, is uh, the ticking flashpoints involving states with large Russian populations. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, particularly the first two, are particularly concerned here not of outright annexation, which I, or, or let's say the same pretext as was used in Crimea for outright support of separatism, but potential destabilization of regimes of governments that are within NATO. And this may be particularly tempting to put in if he gets away with uh, swallowing Crimea or swallowing parts of Ukraine, really to stick it to NATO by trying to unsettle their minority relations. We've already witnessed cyber attacks in Estonia. We've witnessed uh, uh, engineered protests against the removal of a statue to a Soviet soldier in Tallinn. We've witnessed attempts to establish autonomous regions in, in Lithuania in the past. The potential that some other, some other factors, energy, um, terrorism, uh, sabotage, this cannot be discounted to try and, let's say, stick it to the countries in NATO that border, uh, that border Russia. The third danger, I think, are defensive, what I call defensive flashpoints. In other words, there are a string of states, and we've already heard about Hungary, uh, whose security would be threatened by Moscow's ambitions in Ukraine. In particular, I would say Poland, which has been the front runner in defending Ukrainian, not only Ukrainian territorial integrity, but Ukrainian Western integration, particularly towards the European Union. Uh, Poland is watching this extremely carefully. You know the sort of military moves, the F-16s and so on that have already been made. But I think uh, there's a number of factors here. The dismem potential dismemberment of Ukraine will affect Poland directly, will affect Poland's borders. It could mean refugees. It could mean uh, even terrorist actions or Russian incursions. It, there's also a large Polish ethnic population in Ukraine, as there is a large Ukrainian ethnic population in Poland. So there is a concern definitely in Warsaw, and Warsaw has been trying to drag the rest of the European Union to impose more stiffer sanctions against Putin, which we'll see apparently Monday uh, something may, may well be announced. But the other countries as well, I think, are in danger. Uh, as you said, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Romania, of course, because of the Moldovan situation. Uh, if Moldova were to be formally partitioned or a larger Russian force were to move into Transnistria, that would directly concern a Romanian security. Or Russia could, when I say Russia, Putin could whip up conflicts between uh, Russian speakers and uh, Romanian slash Moldovan speakers within Moldova as a new pretext for some sort of greater intervention. The fourth potential flashpoint, and this isn't, I think, talked about, at least I haven't seen it anywhere, are two countries with very sizable Russian minorities and Russian-speaking populations that are within the Russian sphere at the moment, but may be dragged into a conflict that they not, do not wish to participate in. I'm thinking of Belarus and Kazakhstan. Um, <clears throat> in other words, uh, not so much that these 
countries will be threatened with annexation, but threats could be made to their territorial integrity by Moscow if they do not go along with Putin's plans vis-à-vis Ukraine. As we remember, neither Belarus nor Kazakhstan accepted the independence of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. If they are pressured to accept the independence of Crimea, that would mean potential instability in those countries. I don't think they would go along with that. If they don't go along with it, the question is, will Russia say, well, we want your brotherly aid? Uh, We want your fraternal assistance within the framework of the CSTO to help us consolidate these regions as Russian territories, Crimea, maybe Eastern Ukraine, Novorossiya, and so forth. So watch what uh, leaders in Astana and Minsk do vis-a-vis Putin's pressure tactics, because he needs allies in this. Uh, he doesn't want to be too isolated. He needs some allies in this, in this conflict. Let me finish with a couple of ideas. Um, those are, I would say, the four flashpoints. But Putin may be on the ascendancy, but he is sure to miscalculate. I think dictators often think they are invincible when they smell early successes. And this is an early success for him. But I believe an overstretched Russia with growing economic problems and several restive regions together with armed resistance within, within the state that is captured or quasi-captured, as in Ukraine, uh, means that Russia may not be able to withstand a prolonged conflict, either a conflict along its borders or a conflict with the West. And I don't necessarily mean militarily. And let me give you three pointers. I think Western strategy should be based on three main factors. First, the regime's international isolation and I think Vladimir can talk a, a little bit more about this. I'm not going to cover this uh, in any greater detail. Secondly, what I call imperial indigestion. In other words, to make it as tough as possible for any territory that, Mo- that Moscow has captured from its neighbors. And third, the help in destabilizing the Putin regime. Because ultimately, I think if Putin doesn't go down, Russia will go down. This is the choice, I think. It's a major geostrategic choice facing Russia and facing the international community. I think the digestion of any neighboring territory must become as painful as possible. Ukraine's army at this point, they're rebuilding their armed forces. They need assistance. They need trainers. They need technical help. They need anything uh, that is required to build a competent force that even if they cannot resist... Russian military penetration. They can make an invasion as painful, as protracted, as costly, as bloody as possible over the next few years. One could say that the Georgians lost because they didn't fight sufficiently long and sufficiently hard. I do believe the Ukrainians will, and they need assistance to do that. Um, Secondly, I would say that NATO's post-Afghanistan mission, I think, is now very clear. It needs to be specified at the next summit to fully protect the integrity of all member states and their borders and to upgrade the land and air defenses of all countries bordering Russia. This is absolutely essential. Um, Even, I would say, in some cases, sending U.S. troops as potential tripwires. I mean, these countries from Estonia down to Romania would probably want this. I'm sure they would. Also, Article 5, NATO's Article 5 must be clarified so there is no ambiguity regarding what constitutes an armed attack. If you, if you look at Article 5, armed attack is very vague. What we have witnessed in Ukraine is an armed attack couched as, what, peacekeeping, protection of minorities. This is subverted, underhand, 
underhand subversion and, and theft of the, of the territory of a neighboring state. That has to be specified as an armed attack. Beyond, beyond this, I would say NATO has to demonstrate its seriousness and vitality. Na membership invitation must be issued to Montenegro at the upcoming summit, a country that Russia has been courting over the past 10 years, although I think Montenegro has learned its lesson of the perils of Russian investment in their country. I think they are now crying out for an invitation. That is absolutely essential. Georgia and Ukraine must receive membership action uh, uh, membership action plans over the next uh, few months, and um, other countries that petition to join alliance, the open door must be widened. Lastly, I would say on the domestic side, the Kremlin must also be challenged uh, in terms of its uh, in terms of the it, its purported domestic stability. In other words, the Russians have a choice. Russian people have a choice: get rid of Putin or you may begin to see the disintegration of Russia. Russia is not a mono-ethnic state, and this has been missed, I think, in a lot of the discussions we've heard over the past few weeks. A about a quarter of the population of the Russian Federation are non-Russians, some in a region of 20 to 25 million. A substantial majority of those are Muslim people, with a growing population as opposed to the very poor demographic uh, uh, replacement rates amongst the Slavic Russian population. So and some, in some of these regions, there are 21 uh, titular ethnic republics, in nine of which Russians do not form a majority. We've already seen uh, in the North Caucasus uh, movements towards uh, in independence. Uh, I think Russia has now exposed itself to a, what I would call the Crimean boomerang, in other words, that there are regions of Russia that itself could break away from Russia. Why shouldn't Chechnya, Ingushetia, Tatarstan, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, Siberia hold referendums on independence in the future? Uh, a lot of these regions, as I said, are dissatisfied with Moscow, dissatisfied with the Putin regime, this top-down federalism, which isn't really a federal state. And I would add one more thing. I think we need to be careful what we call Russian operations in the North Caucasus. Moscow, in its anti-terrorism operations in the North Caucasus, has targeted more innocent civilian victims than the terrorism perpetrated by local insurgents. Is this truly a counter-terrorism campaign when you flatten an entire city such as Grozny? Uh, so we need to rethink about terrorism cooperation with Russia, exactly what the, uh, Moscow, what the regime is up to. Um, I would say lastly that uh, paradoxically, Putin has opened up the Pandora's box of separatism that can rebound very negatively on Russia itself and on the future of the Russian Federation. And I'll stop there. Uh, th thank you, Janusz. Uh, it's an important point about the potential ethnic cleavages within, within Russia itself. But of course, it's also important to remember that beyond ethnic uh, differences, there's also political differences within Russia. And there is an opposition to Putin. And you, you may, Vladimir, in your presentation talk about um, some poll numbers, but uh, I'll just ask you, are there any reliable polls that let us know what Russians think about Putin's incursion into Ukraine? Well, the last poll on this, um, thank you for the question, Marina. The last poll on this was taken in late February, so that's before the, the beginning of the active phase of the uh, annexation of Crimea. In that poll, which was taken by a state-owned agency, by the way, Tsion, the, the All-Russia Public Opinion uh, Center, 73% uh, of Russians said they're against interference in Ukrainian internal affairs. But since then, there's been two weeks in which we've seen relentless 24-7 uh, 
you know, brainwashing propaganda on every single national TV channel. So uh, there are no poll numbers yet uh, since late February. But the last poll um, taken was that three, almost three quarters are against um, any interference in the internal affairs of Ukraine. Um, so thank you very much uh, to all of you. It's an honor to be back here in the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the same panel with uh, such distinguished co-panelists. And um, um, I would like to uh, begin uh, by saying that, as, as you probably all know, this past weekend, uh, Mikhail Kharkovsky, who uh, for more than a decade was Russia's most prominent political prisoner and was released shortly before the new year, um, flew into Kiev and, and came on the Maidan, Independence Square, to express um, his solidarity uh, with the people of Ukraine. And among the things he said in his speech on the Maidan was this, I want you to know that there is a very different Russia. There are people there who took to the streets to participate in anti-war rallies in Moscow, despite the arrests. There are people there who value their friendship between the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia over their personal freedom." End of quote. I think this different Russia is very often being overlooked and not much talked about uh, in the world media. Uh, it's, it's often hidden behind the barrage of Kremlin propaganda, both for domestic purposes and, and for the outside world. Um, it's hidden by the uh, state-sanctioned and carefully engineered so-called rallies in support of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which goes to your question, which, which are happening in, in cities and towns across Russia in the past two weeks, at which you know, teachers, doctors, municipal workers, and all, all the people who depend on the state for their livelihood are being forced to and, and bust to, you know, to, to these rallies under threat of dismissal. This different Russia is also often unnoticed because um, both of the Kremlin's claims to speak on behalf of the entire Russian nation uh, and also, I think, by the, um, uh, the often the linguistic confusion in, in the Western media, which uh, uh, you know, confuses Russia with Putin's regime, and, and which says Russia when what they actually mean is the actions by uh, an unelected authoritarian corrupt regime, which represses Russian citizens just as much as it now is attempting to repress uh, the independence and freedom of Ukraine. The fact of the matter is that all the leading opposition forces in Russia, and I'm talking about real opposition, not the fake uh, you know, parties that are, that are represented in, in our parliament, but the real opposition forties, uh, forces have unequivocally condemned uh, Putin's aggression uh, against Ukraine. Just a few short uh, quotes. The People's Freedom Party, which is uh, led by Boris Nemtsov, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Russia, and former Prime Minister Mikhail Kasyanov, uh, said this, Putin is now trying to stifle freedom not only in Russia, but also in the neighboring country. We demand that Putin immediately abandon his intentions of using the armed forces of the Russian Federation on a territory of Ukraine, end of quote. Uh, Yablaka, one of the oldest uh, liberal parties uh, in Russia, said the territorial integrity of Ukraine must not be questioned. Those who unleash a war between Russia and Ukraine will be forever damned by the Russian people, end of quote. Uh, and the Progress Party, which is led by Alexei Navalny, the, the rising star, kind of one of the increasingly popular leader in the Russian uh, opposition, the recent Moscow mayoral candidate, uh, in its statement, called uh, Putin's aggression a, quote, reckless policy that goes against the interests uh, of our country, end of quote. Despite the very well-known uh, brutality uh, of Putin's police forces against so-called unsanctioned demonstrations, we have seen uh, spontaneous anti-war uh, protest rallies in Moscow and St. Petersburg from the very first days of this crisis. We've seen hundreds of people uh, detained and hauled away to police stations and, and uh, sentenced to administrative arrests and fines for, uh, for speaking out against Putin's aggression uh, in Ukraine. One of those protesters was um, uh, uh, Igor Andreev in St. Petersburg, a 75-year-old survivor of the Siege of Leningrad by Nazi Germany, um, who was arrested uh, for holding an anti-war poster near St. Isaac's Cathedral 
uh, kept for 24 hours on a concrete floor in a police station, and then sentenced to a fine of 10,000 rubles, which is more than half uh, of his uh, monthly pension. I think it's people like that who, um, uh, you know, f forgive me for, for, for this highbrow language, but th that are basically saving the honor uh, of Russia uh, while uh, Putin's regime uh, is tarnishing it across the globe. Uh, just like I think the Red Square 7 did in August 1968, the people who went to demonstrate in Red Square uh, in Moscow in 1968 against uh, Brezhnev's invasion uh, of Czechoslovakia. And uh, two days from now, this coming Saturday on March the 15th, uh, we will see uh, what I hope will be a massive um, anti-war uh, protest march through the streets of central Moscow, which is organized and supported by, the, uh, by all the leading opposition parties, which I mentioned, and, and, and some others too. I think another important aspect of this is that apart from being an unprovoked aggression against the sovereign independent country, uh, the Ukraine crisis also has very uh, important ramifications uh, for Russia domestically. We have seen, as I mentioned for the past two weeks, uh, this Kremlin instigated nationalist pro-war hysteria uh, in all the state-owned media. The, uh, for many years now, state propaganda has called uh, the Russian opposition, those who oppose Putin's authoritarian policies, you know, traitors in the fifth column of the West inside Russia. Now this is being said no longer by the uh, state TV propaganda, but actually by the Kremlin's press service in the official statement by Mr. Peskov, who's Putin's press secretary just a few days ago on Russian television. He called the opposition in Russia a fifth column, which is you know, a term uh, coming from the, from the Spanish Civil War and, 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 and obviously very ideologically charged term, meaning basically uh, traitors. And in the last uh, two or three days, we are seeing a massive direct attack on what remains of independent media in Russian Federation, the, the small remaining islands of press freedom uh, in Russia. We have seen uh, just yesterday uh, Lenta, Lenta.ru, a leading uh, information news website, effectively shut down when its uh, uh, chief editor was replaced by a Kremlin propagandist. We are seeing an attack on Echo Moskvi radio station, which is the kind of the, the last major uh, a source of independent information, uh, at least in Moscow. Um, uh, you know, the, the director general was changed, and we may see a change in the editor-in-chief tomorrow when the board of directors meet, and that would be, uh, that would be uh, a very grave development indeed. And just now, one, once our panel already began, I, I just checked over the news before speaking, and literally in the last hour the news came that Roskomnadzor, which is the Russian government agency responsible for overseeing uh, the Internet, uh, has banned... Granny.ru, Yorsh.ru, which is a daily journal website, um, the uh, Kasparov, Kasparov.ru, which is an independent uh, newspaper um, owned by Gary Kasparov, as well as the web page, the live journal page of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, have banned them uh, from appearing on Russian internet. They have sent a directive to all the private providers. Uh, this is literally in the last hour of all the, all the private providers of internet in Russian Federation that they should immediately uh, block access to these uh, information sites and the webpage of Navalny. Navalny, of course, himself uh, has been uh, for a few weeks now under house arrest and prohibited from communicating in any way uh, with the outside world. And of course, according to Memorial, uh, the, the, uh, the most respected, most prominent human rights organization in Russia. We now have 40 political prisoners uh, in the Russian Federation. That's the latest figure in the list that was published uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I think when we talk about the, the domestic um, ramifications of Putin's Ukraine policy, I think it's also important to emphasize the other side of this, is that the, uh, this whole crisis, this whole Ukraine crisis, has a domestic origins in Russia. 
as domestic motivations for Putin. And the explanation is essentially domestic. Uh, Putin's attempts and his insistence on keeping in power the client regime of Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine almost at any cost, and now his panic at the prospect of a sovereign, uh, successful, democratic, pro-European Ukraine is not, I think, primarily uh, motivated by, uh, by the desire to have post-Soviet spheres of influence, although that would be nice from his point of view. That would be an added benefit for his regime. The primary motivation uh, is that a sovereign, successful, democratic, pro-European Ukraine would set a, quote, bad example, a dangerous precedent for those urban middle-class Russians who have been coming out to the streets in the past two years who are increasingly turned against uh, Putin's corrupt and authoritarian regime. What he's really afraid of is a Maidan in Moscow, and that is the reason he's behaving the way he's behaving in the past two or three weeks or the past couple of months now. The irony, of course, is that by cracking down further uh, and uh, uh, tightening the screws further domestically, all he's doing uh, is increasing the likelihood of a Maidan in Moscow. As I mentioned, in the, in the past two years, we have seen, uh, you know, since late 2011, early 2012, we've seen tens of thousands of Russians coming out to the streets uh, to protest against the election fraud and the corruption and the repression uh, and the injustice of Putin's authoritarianism. Uh, these were the, the largest pro-democracy rallies in Russia since uh, the 1991 uh, anti-communist revolution. And, and the backbone of these protests have been the growing urban middle class uh, in Russia, the more professional, the younger, the more educated people, the driving force, as it were, of, of, of modern uh, European societies. Uh, even according to the official count uh, of the so-called presidential election in 2012, according to the official figures, Putin has lost majority support in Moscow, in Kaliningrad, in Vladivostok, in Omsk, in Vladimir, and in other major population centers across the country from west to east. Uh, in the latest round of regional elections in, in this past September, uh, Alexei Navalny, whom I mentioned, came out of almost nowhere to receive, even officially again, 30% of the vote uh, in the Russian capital, the highest figure for any opposition uh, leader in more than a decade. Uh, and uh, there were some uh, other prominent uh, opposition successes in the regions beyond Moscow. Boris Nemtsov got elected in, in Yaroslavl. Opposition candidates won uh, in Karelia and Petrozavodsk and in, in Yekaterinburg and in the mayoral races. So, so the past few months, I think, have buried for good this Kremlin propaganda myth uh, that they've been trying to, to sell to people for years, that the opposition in Russia is just a marginal group with no public support. I think that myth uh, has been shattered. And it is, of course, only for Russian citizens uh, and for Russian societies, as Janusz just suggested, to, uh, to bring democratic change to our country. This cannot be done from the outside, and, and this should, be, should not be done from the outside. But if our friends and partners in the democratic world, in the West, want to show solidarity with the people of Russia, with the civil society of Russia, and now with the people of Ukraine who are, who are being subject to an unprovoked foreign aggression, there is a very straightforward and simple step they can take. When we talk about, as, as the, the previous panelists have talked about, and, and I'm sure that my colleagues will in a minute too, uh, we'll talk about the similarities between uh, uh, the Soviet regime and, and Putin's regime now, both domestically and now in terms of foreign policy too. There are indeed many of those similarities. Uh, but there is also one very important difference. While they were invading other countries and jailing and harassing dissidents at home, uh, members of the Politburo of the Soviet Communist Party did not send their kids to study in the West. They did not hold bank accounts in the West. They did not buy yachts and luxury real estate in, in, in Western Europe and North America. The current Kremlin leaders do. 
And I think it is high time to end this double standard and to end this impunity and to send a signal to those who engage in aggression against Ukraine, who repress and crack down on the rights of Russian citizens on a daily basis, that they should not be entitled to the privileges and the comfort of the, of the democratic world for themselves and for their families. It is time to move forward with those targeted personal sanctions against the aggressors, the abusers, and the crooks to finally send that message. And uh, as you know, the, the Magnitsky law has been on the books in the United States for more than two years now. To, to say the least, to put it mildly, it has not been very adequately implemented. All we've seen is a short list of some low-level officials issued uh, almost a year ago and no updates since. It is time to move ahead with fully implementing that law. Uh, in the last few days, the president has issued an executive order um, you know, pointing to the way for sanctions against those who are engaged in aggression against Ukraine. And there also moves uh, in the U.S. Senate now to make this uh, into a legislative uh, document. I think it's time to move ahead with that. This coming Monday, the uh, Council of European Foreign Ministers, EU Foreign Ministers in Brussels, will decide on its own package of uh, personal targeted sanctions, not against Russia, it's really important, against those crooks and the abusers in power in Putin's uh, inner circle. Once again, the difference between Russia and, and the Kremlin regime. Uh, that's going to be even more crucial than anything done in the United States because, of course, most of those assets and, and bank accounts uh, are, are in Europe rather than here in the U.S. For too many years, for too long, uh, Western leaders have turned a blind eye to Putin's domestic repression until, uh, you know, as could, could have been easily predicted, and indeed it was, it was predicted by many analysts, including people sitting at this panel, this uh, inward in, uh, repression uh, finally turned into outward aggression against neighboring countries. For too long they have turned a blind, blind eye to this, but it's, I suppose, better late than never. So I think it's, it's, it's high time uh, to act and to move ahead and to send that message to those people that as long as they behave this way, they're not going to be welcome here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vladimir. Uh, Vladimir, just ask you really quickly, have you been satisfied with Germany's role in, uh, in Europe's response to, to Russia? Well, uh, it's important to note that there's, there's of course, a, different, uh, there's a difficult um, domestic position for the current German government because since the end, end of last year, it's been a, a right-left coalition between the CDU and the Socialists, and, of course, the foreign ministry. Uh, is in the hand of the of the socialists, and of course there's still a large segment of the German socialist or social democrat party SDP that are influenced, uh, you know, that still are the supporters of of Mr. Schroeder, who is now an employee of uh, Vladimir Putin at Gazprom, and has been taking according positions. So um, that's an important kind of balancing act, I think, that the German Chancellor has to has to keep in mind. But I think overall, if you look at the um, European Union and its and its public responses in the last few days. Uh, I think the, um, the responses coming from Berlin have been, with the exception of uh, the Baltic states and, and Central and Eastern Europe, which, as I always say, I was just two weeks ago, was in, um, in Riga, in Latvia, speaking at the Latvian parliament, and you know, we, we were having this conversation, and I said, you, know, you guys understand us much better than, um, than Western European states, to be honest, because you know, they know what the KGB is. They remember it still. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, and this also goes uh, for Poland and, and Hungary and, and other countries in the post-Soviet bloc. It's still there. There's no such thing as a former country. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, you know, it's, it's a bit better in, in your guys' countries than in ours. But um, apart from the Central and East European countries, if you take the so-called old Europe, I think the German response has been the most adequate and, uh, uh, and the most uh, forthright. And, and, uh, but I ho I'm hoping that that doesn't stop just with words and that when the European foreign ministers meet in Brussels on Monday, 
uh, that there'll be a concrete decision coming out of it. So those targeted sanctions? Yes, those targeted sanctions uh, against specific officials in the Putin regime who are responsible for the Ukraine invasion uh, and for the violations of uh, rights of Russian citizens. Yes. Thank you, Vladimir. We'll now turn to Irina Yalupa. Thank you. I almost think that we need a, a change in terminology. Maybe we shouldn't just call them sanctions, but call them personal sanctions, because very often when we use the word sanctions, people think, oh, the people will suffer. You know, people think about Iran and uh, limiting uh, imports of goods and so forth and so on. But these kinds of personal targeted sanctions will only affect the bad guys, so to speak. Anyway, um, we've talked very, very widely about uh, the sort of global ramifications of what's happening in Ukraine, um, what it means for the general global community. I'd like to bring it down to Ukraine itself and just acquaint you with some of the things that have happened just today. Um, two more people have died in hospital from injuries that they sustained on the, on the Maidan, which brings the count now to about 102 and growing. There are hundreds of people in hospital who have been blinded, burnt, severely, severely injured, who are in dire need of really good medical care. Ten were medevac to Israel yesterday. Some are in the process of being brought to various European hospitals. It's a huge humanitarian crisis that has taken place in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and I think that's something that we, we tend to forget about. Uh, today, in Crimea, a French journalist from Canal Plus uh, was taken hostage by the self-proclaimed uh, Crimean self-defense forces. He was held for several hours. Thankfully, he's been released. One of the Ukrainian planes that regularly patrols the Ukrainian-Russian border was shot at by uh, the Russians in the area of Armiansk. Uh, Ukrainian television channels are now completely blocked from Crimea. So the only channels that uh, the citizens of Crimea, well, not citizens, people who live in Crimea can enjoy are wonderful propagandist Russian channels. Uh, the head of the Crimean Parliamentary Committee, which will be overseeing the referendum that's meant to take place on the 16th, has said that it doesn't matter how many people turn out to vote. The majority's voice is what will be counted. So extrapolating from that, if 10 people come to vote and six of them say, yes, we want, about, uh, we want to be reunited with Russia or united with Russia, that will count. That's the logic of this particular referendum. The Russian Black Sea Fleet has sunk four of its own ships in an effort to stop Ukrainian ships from going out to sea. So if these ships are there, the area um, is not very, very deep, so Ukrainian sh ships cannot sail over because they'll uh, ostensibly crash into these sunken ships. Um, a very respected polling outfit in Ukraine, the Razumkov Center, uh, conducted a poll on how the Ukrainian government is doing, the interim government. They conducted this poll from the 5th through the 10th of March, covering all of the provinces of Ukraine. And nearly 60% of the, the respondents said that they approve of the actions of the current interim government. The Romanian president, Traian Basescu, has expressed concern about a possible Russian military intervention in Moldova, something that my colleagues on this panel have already addressed to some extent. Um, and um, so just, you know, in one day, not even a span of 24 hours, a huge amount of events and information and a lot of things to really absorb. And this is what Ukrainian life has been 
like for the last three months. So uh, I think I can, uh, I can understand why everybody is completely stressed out. So uh, a couple of things about the atmosphere in Ukraine and what I see as happening in Ukraine. This crisis, particularly this Crimean crisis, has really solidified the nation. A couple of uh, uh, days ago, the Ukrainian government announced a general kind of um, uh, mobilization, and there were lines outside of uh, army offices of people who are ready and willing to enlist, who want to go and uh, fight for Crimea. The Ukrainian government has chosen to be very sort of Gandhi-like in this uh, in this situation. They clearly know that a military solution is no solution, and uh, they have really behaved stoically. And uh, the entire Ukrainian um, country is sending poems, songs, flowers, care packages, all sorts of things to the Ukrainian military in Crimea, expressing a lot of you know, love and support and um, and actually admiration for them because they have really behaved very, very nobly and courageously. The Ukrainian government, this interim government, is struggling. It has made some mistakes, but generally it is doing a reasonable job. And it seems to me that it will most likely be putting out fires in more than actually implementing policy and 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 doing things that a proper government should be doing. I think everyone who's in place knows that they're in a caretaker role, that things will change very dramatically after the presidential elections. There's a huge movement in Ukraine to also hold parliamentary elections at the same time or maybe quickly after to really solidify everything and start working with a new political setup because um, I'd like to remind you that Ukraine is now poised to become a parliamentary democracy rather than a presidential democracy. They have reverted back to a previous uh, constitution, which um, uh, has most of the executive powers in the office of the prime minister rather than the president. So uh, with the existing parliament, it will be very, very difficult to sort of for, the, for a real government to function until you have uh, proper parliamentary elections. There's a general understanding in the entire country that everything's broken and it needs to be rebuilt. I think that that is a um, consensus across the board in very many places, in most places actually, including uh, eastern Ukraine. Um, I think there are very clear indications. Actually, there's, there's co con concrete proof that language and these east-west divides are no longer real issues uh, it's um, very unfortunate to see in Western media these same old stereotypes, you know, Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers. I think that language now really, really plays a secondary role. For starters, no one has ever persecuted the, Ukra the Russian language in, um, in Ukraine, and no one has ever been punished for speaking Russian or insisting on speaking Russian. If you want to send your children to Russian language schools, there are Russian language schools that you can send them to. Uh, very often, Ukrainian speakers have problems, particularly Ukrainian speakers in eastern Ukraine. If they want to send their children to, to Ukrainian schools, they simply aren't there. So you have um, heard Russian just as much as Ukrainian from the Maidan. There have been very many Russian speakers addressing the, the demonstrators. And there's a general uh, sentiment, I see, that language is no longer a... Um, a divisive role. And I think that perhaps 
Ukraine will be a bilingual country in the future. I think that you can be a Ukraine patriot while speaking Russian, and even if you're a, a, an ethnic Russian. And it may be something like Ireland, where very few people speak Gaelic, but they are learning it, but they are still Irish patriots, Irish uh, citizens, and they don't think of themselves as English simply because they speak English. In America, we speak English, but we're American, we're not English, so. <laughs> not pointing fingers at anybody. Yeah, yes. Um, a couple of a, cou a couple of other other things that I think are quite quite important in terms of what what is happening in Ukraine. The oligarchs, to a very large extent, have been outed. Uh, by that, I mean that they have always been behind the scenes. They've been movers and shakers to a very, very large extent. Well, now they are in real positions of power. Three Eastern European, um, excuse me, three Eastern Ukrainian provinces are controlled by oligarchs. They have been asked by the interim government to assume the governorship of these three provinces. And there's some honesty in that because they have been the power brokers to a very large extent behind the scenes. Now they can prove their mettle in public. And, uh, and I think that that is a very interesting development and a very honest development. We all know that in these post-communist countries, money talks, bullshit walks, pardon my French. And, um, and there are oligarchs and oligarchic clans across the entire post-Soviet space. And these people control things to a very, very large extent. They control the politics of the country and they control the economy of the country. Well, now they are in a position where they can actually claim responsibility, be responsible for the development of the country. And I think that their personal interests are now nakedly obvious to everyone. And I think that that is a positive um, and actually quite a clever move on the part of the Ukrainian government to enlist the help and support of these people. I, I don't know if that could happen in, uh, in Russia. I think the, the oligarchic development there is, is a, little bit, a little bit different. Um, uh, what Ukraine needs now is a real national narrative that will bind the country together. I remember in the... Orange Revolution, one of the popular chants was East and West together, Sid Izahid Razum. We've heard that a little bit um, in this particular Maidan Revolution. Uh, I suppose with uh, attempts to disengage Crimea from Ukraine, that chant might have to be expanded a little bit. But I think the country is very, very united in the face of Russian aggression in Crimea. But once that aggression goes away or once that aggression is in some way managed, that union will need a national narrative. And I think that in this situation, it's up to the Ukrainian government to construct that narrative. And as we speak, uh, the Ukrainian prime minister is addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations. He was here yesterday, had meetings at the White House, and uh, talked in the Security Council, and also uh, he addressed the Atlantic Council. And he was very, very clear and unequivocal about what this government is about and the things that they are trying to achieve. He said it's all about freedom, our freedom, 
and the freedom of all of our citizens. Someone asked him, well, you could easily handle Crimea by turning off the gas and turning off the electricity. And he said, we're not going to do that. Those are our citizens. We cannot just cut them off and leave them uh, to the mercy of the little green men. That's what the Ukrainian media calls these unnamed soldiers who are um, running around Crimea wreaking havoc, the, the little green man. Um, and um, yesterday, yesterday, the prime minister also said something, uh, uh, I think, very, very telling, which points me to think that um, they understand what needs to be done. He quoted Vladimir Putin's uh, statement that the um, disintegration of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Yatsenyuk said that the restoration of the Soviet Union would be the biggest geopolitical disaster of the 21st century. And... um, uh, I know that I've rambled a little bit all over the place, and uh, for which for which I apologize. But this, the way I see it, and the way a lot of people in Ukraine see it, the, the things that I've been able to see from Ukrainian media, social networks, my own personal contacts. My husband happens to be in Crimea right now, and I don't know if I'll ever see him again because he can't fly out of Crimea. Uh, the airspace is closed. He doesn't have a Russian visa. The only planes leaving or arriving um, in Crimea are from Moscow. So um, we're good. I may be a, a widow or something like that. I mean, <laughs> I hope that he will re- he will return. I'm sure this situation will somehow somehow correct itself. But uh, it is a very 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 dangerous uh, situation. And if it is allowed to stay to if it is allowed to spin out of control. It will have ramifications not just for Europe but, but for the entire global um, order. And in closing, I would like to say one thing. My husband, who's a very, very good journalist and has uh, a lot of experience in working in um, war zones and, and uh, complicated areas, has spoken to a swathe of people in Crimea. And he said that if he feels that, based on his conversations and interviews with people, if a true referendum was allowed to take place in Crimea. He feels that um, most people would vote to remain part of Ukraine. But we all know that a true referendum will not take place. Uh, I haven't got a solution for um, for the Crimean issue. And I my sympathies go out to the Ukrainian government because they are between a rock and a hard place. But I feel that they are trying to be inclusive. They're putting out fires, as I have said before. And given the chance, I think they understand that the country cannot be subjected to cataclysms every 10 years. 10 years ago, we had an orange revolution. Now we have the Maidan. They cannot afford to have another kind of uh, expulsion, the cataclysmic kind of demonstration 10 years hence. This particular... Maidan revolution has shown that Ukrainian leadership for 20 years has been corrupt, inept, and not least, not in the least bit focused on the needs of the country and certainly not the needs of its citizens. And the current government knows that they will now be subjected to much greater scrutiny than ever before. The, Ameri- the Ukrainian populace feels very, very empowered. We have seen 
marvelous, exemplary, stellar work from Ukrainian journalists who, despite being beaten, despite being beheaded, despite being threatened and kidnapped and so forth and so on, have been able to trace bank accounts, find villas and yachts and all sorts of things, and they've been able to show the Ukrainian populace, the Ukrainian citizenry, where their money has gone. There's a lot of anger on on the part of the Ukrainian people, but that anger is controlled and i th- i feel and i believe that that anger will be channeled channeled into something positive a massive rebuilding of a country that is badly broken thank you thank you irina i'd like to just pick up on your last words there actually um i don't know if you saw it but there was uh, an, an essay in the new republic recently by writer ukrainian writer named portnikov and it was um the, the title of it was the age old connection between russia and ukraine is over and it was essentially a sort of requiem for Kivan Rus. Um, and he is saying that this, uh, th- this action by Putin is essentially uh, creating, in a way, a national narrative that can give Ukrainians uh, a common future. Do you view this as, as, as somehow correct? And, and especially keep, keeping in mind that uh, even Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a, a fierce anti-Soviet, of course, mm-hmm. survivor of the Gulag, believed that uh, this, this ancient uh, Ukrainian-Russian connection was important to maintain. I frankly don't think it's particularly important to maintain. Um, Kiev and Rus is a state that existed over a thousand years ago, and it's gone. Uh, there are other examples in history where different people have come from different roots. You know, you sort of have to get over it and uh, and live in the 21st century. Um, I'm toying with writing an essay about fraternalism. There is a lot of talk <coughs> about Ukrainians and Russians being brothers. Well. The fact of the matter is they are not brothers. They're neighbors. You know, if you use that argument, then Americans and, and Canadians are brothers, American and, and the English are brothers, uh, the Germans and I don't know, the Austrians are brothers. But really, are they? You know, so let's have good neighborly relations with Russia. Let's stop with the romantic nonsense because it really doesn't uh, – it doesn't – do anything. It doesn't enforce any kind of, um, I feel, positive or respectful reciprocity amongst the nations. I think Vladimir would would probably might agree with me, because fraternalism, I think it's quite an old concept. It's like pan-Slavism. I mean, uh, to me, it's nonsense. Um, I would say that uh, there are the historical connections, the cultural, the linguistic, the religious connections, and, and and there is this you know, feeling, but the way to preserve it is not to go uh, and, and attack um, the country and, and try to annex part of its territory. You mentioned Solzhenitsyn, who, who, who talked of the importance of keeping the ties. Mm-hmm. But also the same Solzhenitsyn back in the 60s said that we have to accept that Ukraine will be independent and we have to support it. So it doesn't, for me, that's not an either or. Mm-hmm. We, we can cherish our historical connections and respect each other as sovereign, independent European nations. That's another thing uh, Harakovsky said on the Maidan, that Russia and Ukraine do have a common future. It's a future uh, in Europe, exactly. So I think that's the new kind of project, common project that we have ahead of us, you know, in in the next decades. It's not to kind of recreate anything looking back, but uh, being, yes, you know, historically common, but separate, independent, sovereign, European democratic nations. And I think, and I think, uh, Irena, what you said about the Russian language in Ukraine is exactly uh, correct. I think this is artificial, this... Uh, as you say, half of the speakers on the Maidan spoke Russian. That's mm-hmm. not an issue at all. That's something that's being artificially uh, inflamed, I don't think with great success, uh, you know, from, from the Kremlin and its state propaganda machine. It just doesn't work that way. It's that, that's the, they try to do the same uh, for the Baltic states. 
you know, they say if you watch Putin's TV, you think that if you speak uh, Russian, you know, Italian or in Riga, you'll get shot or something. It's, uh, mm. As in Lvov, for example, that's, they said the same thing. I was in Riga two weeks ago. Everybody speaks Russian. That's fine. It's just that's just a non-issue. They're trying to exploit it to create a bogus uh, pretext for, you know, for, for whatever, for invading, for, quote, protecting. It's just not true. No, it isn't. Um, uh, going back to the fraternal relations, I mean, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not dismissing them outright. They have existed historically, and the two countries have a shared history. Um, yeah, shared religion. Well, I would beg to differ on that one a little bit. Uh, you know, or, there's orthodoxy and there's orthodoxy, and um, but <laughs> we don't have enough time to 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 go into that. And I the think shared history hasn't always been very fraternal. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that the we just have to live in the 21st century, accept our differences, um, uh, and uh, and get on with it. There is no animosity between Ukrainians and Russians. The, this, the, the interim government has been very, very clear about wanting to have good neighborly relations with Russia. They've bent over backwards, calling on the Russian government to start negotiations. Poor Secretary Kerry went to Brussels with the Ukrainian foreign minister and kept chasing Lavrov, who kept running away and wouldn't speak to them. I mean, I mean, these are the kinds of things that the, the poor government has to deal with. And, um, you know, f there's fraternalism and then there's reality. And, and I, I firmly believe that good neighborly rela relations, partnerships, equal partnerships, is what we need in the 21st century between Ukraine and Russia and not sentimental old historical ties. And, of course, Turchinov, the acting president, has vetoed that law that was... Uh, yeah. Uh, that's something which he talks about. Which that didn't apply to yeah. Crimea in the first yeah, place. Yeah, but, but the status of regional languages, so it's Russian in some places, Hungarian and Romanian in, in, in southwestern Ukraine. He vetoed that, whereas, of course, mm -hmm. if you watch Kremlin propaganda, you would think yeah. that law was abolished. It was not. He vetoed it expressly, and I think it was a very good de decision that he did so. There are many, many issues about languages and language law. Um, when this language law was passed in the Ukrainian parliament um, previously, they use the European Charter on Regional Languages as a example. Well, the, the European Charter on Regional Languages is a very problematic document. It's meant to protect indigenous regional languages, but many countries in the European Union have not ratified it because it is so problematic. The French, for example, have not done it because they're afraid that uh, the Bretons and the, and, and the Basques will uh, demand that everything be in their languages. So... We have to be reasonable about languages and protecting minority languages. The fact of the matter people is that people have to communicate, and they need some sort of a common language to communicate. I think – I personally love languages, and um, uh, there's an institute uh, that tracks languages that are dying, and many of them are at risk. Maybe that's, that's – Oh, Yeah. Yeah. See, so, yeah, sorry, My, the, de the list of the dead is, is growing. Um, but at the end of the day, we all need a common language to communicate in. And it should, be a, it should not only be the language of humanity, but it should be a common language that both sides can agree on. Thank, thank you both. I think that was an insightful exchange to understand the, the historical and linguistic things that you're grappling with as you try to, uh, to build a free, free country. So we'll turn now to uh, Bart Novak. The floor is yours. Well, it's uh, quite difficult to say something new, but uh, um, let me 
let me start with this that I'm really happy here in DC as a Pole because uh, I'm not anymore considered as hawkish country. Um, and that is the case actually in Western Europe. Poland is considered as a hawkish country. Uh, I think that the position is much more nuanced and we are hawkish in the aim we want to achieve, but not uh, in the measures that we would like to apply. And uh, if I may remind uh, uh, when our colleagues were, when, when our colleague from the panel was one of the leaders of Hungarian presidency in the EU and Poland uh, took over half a year after this. And this was the last attempt of Poland to try to build and reinvigorate truly European security and defense policy. And uh, we failed. Poland was so disillusioned on that time. We were trying to build around these articles of the Lisbon Treaty, which are much better guarantee than the NATO Treaty. Uh, uh, and it all failed. Uh, and since that time, since 2011, uh, what we observe in Poland was the strategic investment in security sector, and it was observable in all the international press, but it was precisely in territorial security. It was territorial defense. So not this kind of security which we defined in terms of common uh, European security and defense policy. Uh, and uh, we were also, uh, we had also all these pictures of uh, US pivot to Asia. So uh, Poland really felt insecure. And it feels now. Uh, but I would say that I was surprised how moderate Poland was during this whole crisis. In fact, Polish Prime Minister Tusk uh, warned the European Union leaders already in December last year that there is something going on very bad in Crimea. And we would expect this. And everybody thought that we are crazy. Uh, it seems that not necessarily. But uh, uh, our, our argument uh, with Vladimir Putin case and with Russia, logic of, of, of that situation is more or less as follow. Uh, Putin, Putin aims, Putin's primary aim uh, in invading Crimea was to halt Ukraine's way to the EU. That's it. Uh, and his logic was that once Russian soldiers uh, land in Crimea, uh, no force could compel them to withdraw. And that's probably true. Um, and Putin assumed that uh, uh, OECE, of which Russia is a member country, uh, can somehow be played out if it sends the mission. Uh, Putin assumed that the potential sanctions will not be indifferent to Russia but uh, the real impact will be rather moderate. Um, and for example, suspension of, uh, suspension of G8 or even, uh, or even uh, expulsion of Russia from G8 uh, does not really matter because Russia feels now much better in, in the company of BRICS countries and most of all the G20 does matter today in the world, not necessarily the, G, the, the G8. The boycott of Paralympics 
by number of teams would probably hurt uh, uh, to bigger extent the sportsmen, um, not necessarily the, the Russia image. The EU's suspension of visa facilitation and trade agreement, um, well, it was in stalemate um, in, in, in the last time, and, and the partnership and cooperation agreement, uh, it is in stalemate since 2007. So there is no such a difference in this. There is no real difference. Putin also assumed that uh, um, uh, France's refusal to suspend the provision of mistral warships uh, Great Britain's position that is tied to London City and uh, Germany's unwillingness to use sanctions because of its industry interests, that this is the sign of the EU disunity, in fact. Um, if Given these assum assumptions, uh, Putin should be the strategic winner because he assumed that he will take over the Crimea, uh, invoke separatism in Crimea, uh, and Eastern Ukraine. And just to remind you, the original uh, question in Crimea referendum uh, was about greater autonomy. And he wanted to inflame Eastern Ukraine with the demands of greater autonomy. It would, be, uh, it would effectively meant the so-called decentralization of Ukraine or federalization. It would effectively halt the Ukraine way to the EU because the central government would not be able to uh, govern the country effectively, and the EU would not be happy to talk to such a divided country. So, in fact, he could achieve his aims uh, if he stayed moderate. Uh, but this scenario, uh, I would say, backfired uh, because of two unintended dynamics and because of uh, overextension of Putin's aim. Uh, so the first dy dynamic, uh, uh, it appeared to me that Ukraine's uh, potential for a split appeared to be myth. And uh, many speakers already, already said this. And probably P Putin didn't know this. Um, Ukraine's leader's determination was also admirable. They decided to undertake such a radical and painful economic reforms now uh, and transformation that, uh, as, as Prime Minister uh, Yatsenyuk said, it, would, it, it may happen to be suicidal. Um, and they also kept national emotions uh, um, controlled and relatively calm in Ukraine, and that is very, very important. Second, Putin underestimated the determination of the West. Uh, he may have relied too much uh, on the obvious weaknesses of the West, uh, the unwillingness to use really tough sanctions, uh, and the incapacity to undertake any hard military measures. That is fact. But uh, a very decisive condemnation of Russia really played a role. And I would say that uh, uh, even China's uh, behavior was somehow relatively rebuked to Putin. Uh, China recognized uh, new Ukraine's authorities, uh, and it, it didn't take a voice in the first Security Council debate. And in the second Security Council debate, which I was observing, it simply stated very shortly that uh, it recognizes Ukraine's sovereignty and integral territory. territorial. So uh, uh, it was a really, I would say, bad sign for Putin. And third, and 
most of all, the West put money on the table, unexpectedly. Uh, this is not maybe too much, but we are very well aware that uh, it is the beginning. Um, and third, I think that Putin's biggest mistake was that in the game, uh, he exchanged the potentially greater uh, Crimea autonomy um, into de facto annexation of Crimea territory. And now he is in the corner uh, because he cannot withdraw from Crimea. Uh, it would be a defeat of Putin. Uh, but Crimean accession to Russia uh, will be very costly economically and politically. And if the West decides for, for really harsh sanctions, it can even lead in the future to very bad development in, in Putin's territory. So uh, the point is today that we are in a, a zero-sum logic game. And I have no idea how to find a third way for Putin. Uh, in Crimea, you cannot define this. He, he cannot with, withdraw Russian soldiers because it would be his defeat. Uh, he recognizes still the old Ukraine's government and uh, President Yanukovych, and this is out of reality. So how to find a third way to resolve this conflict? And my last point... Uh, I think that one of the lessons that we draw when it comes to the development of security situation in Central and Eastern Europe is that both Moldova and Georgia application for association agreement with the EU are on the way. And these are the next countries. Uh, uh, and just one reminder, one reminder of the situation of 2008 and Georgia war. I was wondering what would happen if Georgia and Ukraine were given membership action plans in Bucharest, summit of NATO. And I think that there are two options. We would have no aggressions from the side of Russia, or we would have no NATO. Because the security guarantees must be real. And I'm really not sure, and Poland is really not sure, that NATO can do something. And that's the biggest strategic challenge for Poland now. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. So we're going to turn it over to Wes Mitchell now and uh, hear, hear, hear all about uh, the security and geostrategic implications here. But I'll just start by asking you, um, there might be some tension here between you and Vladimir's uh, approach on Putin's motivations. And... Um, well, let's hear what you have to say, but is that, is that a case of who's thinking of us now? Well, we should argue about that at length. I think we can be ecumenical and agree that Putin probably had both geopolitical and domestic motives. Um, I, I'll, I'll talk mainly about the geopolitical um, dimensions of this, and let me just say thank you, Marion, for the introduction, and also Richard and John and uh, our friends at the Hungarian Embassy. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about what is uh, one of the most important events of the current time. I... Um, my, my, the focus of my comments are somewhat different than the other p panelists. I, I want to look at the implications of the Crimean crisis for security among uh, Central European members of the NATO alliance, but also for U.S. strategy more broadly. L let me just start by saying that Crimea is a wake-up call for the NATO alliance. Um, it would be hard to conceive of a geopolitical event um, that would hold more profound implications, profound negative implications, 
for uh, the uh, national security prospects of U.S. allies in Central Europe than to see Russian military units forcibly altering the territory of a sovereign neighboring state that has the kind of geopolitical centrality to the European order, the European security order that Ukraine has. Uh, This move is a direct challenge to the post-1989 settlement in Europe. It's a violation of no no fewer than four international agreements underpinning stability and legitimacy of the post-Cold War territorial status quo. This is a classic predatory land grab. Uh, This is the second time in five years that Russia has subjected a former satellite to sustained humiliation and dismemberment in full view of the international community without an effective response from the West. It reinforces the demonstration effect of the 2008 Georgia War on a far grander scale and in a more important country. It very likely signals the end of a stable territorial status quo east of Poland, and it radiates insecurity into neighboring states, particularly north-central Europe and the Baltic states, as, as Janusz mentioned. Crimea is also, I think, closely watched as a precedent globally by exposed U.S. allies in other regions and also by U.S. rivals in other regions. The biggest consumers of the instability generated by Crimea are frontline U.S. allies in Central Europe. Uh, This is a region that is known for its stark security dilemma and geopolitical predicament. The thousand miles between the Baltic and Black Sea is a historic crush zone Um, It's the birthplace of three global wars in the 20th century, two hot wars and one cold war. The period since 1989 has been kind of a golden age for the Central European nation state. The past 25 years, we've had the most stable and prosperous period in probably a thousand years of Central European history. Um, It's interesting to think that modern Central European nation states have now outlasted the interwar Central European democracies by by about five years. Um, but I, but I, think what, I think that there have been growing signs for a while that the post-Cold War security or, order in this part of Europe is, is not in good repair. Three broad trends, uh, the reassertiveness of Russia in Central Europe and the post-Soviet space, the reorientation of U.S. strategic attention away from Europe, and the general crisis of Europe in economic governance and in political governments, um, uh, I think have set, set the table here. Um, The response to those trends in Central Europe and among Central European allies in NATO has been interesting. It's essentially utilized a range of what you could think of as coping mechanisms or a diversification of of strategic menu cards. And we've seen this in a variety of forms even before Crimea. Um, Increased military self-help and modernization. Poland is the most notable example of this, spending $40 billion over the next decade on some of the most sophisticated military weaponry available – um, when this is complete, Poland will have the largest – I'm sorry, the heaviest land force in Europe. Um, the territorialization of the Polish post-ISAF military doctrine that Bartek referred to. I think even before Crimea, we also saw some of the ripple effects from the Georgia War in the form of in, the strengthening of intra-regional alliances in Central Europe. There's been a noticeable increase in regional coordination, and the Visegrad Group and Nordic-Baltic Group are, are of course, uh, the best examples of this. Um, I think unlike in the past, Visegrad cooperation has increasingly concentrated on things that actually matter, um, defense and energy security. I think there's been considerable leadership by, the, by Hungary on energy security in particular in a Visegrad context. Um, heightened uh, Central European investment in EU security to a point um, which has been mentioned, which was mentioned by Bartek uh, a moment ago. Poland has made conspicuous investments over the last few years 
uh, in encouraging a more robust EU defense mechanism. And prior to Crimea, I think one of the trends we also saw in Central Europe, just under this heading of strategic diversification, has been what you might call detente light, um, efforts by some Central European states to hedge their bets and, and invest in closer relations with lar- the large flanking powers, Germany, or in some cases even Russia. What's interesting on a broader level is how closely this kind of behavior in Central Europe mirrors strategic diversification efforts that are underway on the part of small geopolitical, geopolitically exposed U.S. allies in the, among the littoral East Asian states and in the Middle East. Um, none, of, none of this is, in its Central European context is necessarily incompatible with commitments of these states to NATO and the EU, but I think it already suggested a, low, a baseline of low confidence or a low confidence threshold in NATO even before the Crimean uh, crisis. After Crimea, um, I would expect to see an intensification of some of these coping strategies. Uh, Poland is already accelerating air and missile defense tender. It may increase allocations for modernization beyond the $40 billion. Hungary had already before uh, Crimea, the Hungarian government had announced a spending increase on defense. Others may follow. Um, most Central European states are habitual underspenders on defense, and Crimea could change that. Um, the Crimean crisis, I think, also focuses the attention of regional groupings, like the Visegrad group or Nordic-Baltic group. Uh, Sweden is showing signs of increased interest in cooperation with, with the Baltic states after Crimea. Efforts are underway to increase Polish participation as a bridge between Nordic-Baltic and, and Visegrad defense cooperation mechanisms. The dynamic in Visegrad is, is more complicated, and we can talk about that if there's interest, but um, I think it's more complicated than the Nordic-Baltic state uh, grouping, in part because the threat perceptions in Visegrad are, are less form, uh, uniform. Um, the Carpathian Mountains have, I think, always been sort of a strategic Achilles heel to V4, not because they bar cooperation, but because of just the, diff- the different effects of, of geography on threat perceptions, north and south. Um, the Crimean crisis could have a unifying effect in, in, for the region. There's an article in today's Financial Times in which Marco Mickelson um, argues that that's exactly what's going to happen, but I think it remains to be seen, again, for reasons we can discuss in greater detail. But I think there are also some strands of Central European allied strategic behavior that may be more difficult to sustain after, after Crimea. Um, the tentative efforts that have been made at a, at a Russian-Polish a rapprochement we're already flagging, but I think it's now hard to, to envision with much substance. More importantly, um, Polish, the Polish foreign policy emphasis on synchronizing policy with Germany. I may actually have a little bit of a disagreement with, with Bartek on this. I'm not sure, but um, there, there is, in a tactical sense, considerable Polish-German uh, solidarity right now over the Crimea crisis. Steinmeier was just in Warsaw. But I think crises like Crimea tend to bring more differences to the surface um, than they do similarities over time in the Polish and German geopolitical positions in terms of perceptions of Russia, strategic interests in Ukraine, views on energy policy. One geopolitical ripple effect of Crimea over time um, that I think is worth watching may be be the return of Poland to classic middle power politics. Um, Poland has historically done best geopolitically when it has two things, a strong outside benefactor and strategic depth in its own region. And I think Poland now has a serious problem on its hands in both of these categories. Um, The platforma foreign policy paradigm of conscious investment in German relations, um, EU integration, and moving away from the intermarum approach in Polish foreign policy is possible only insofar as there is a relatively quiet geopolitical environment in the East. 
um, I think over time, if Crimea brings asymmetric threat perceptions to the fore between Poland and Germany or, or, or other Western European countries, it could make that kind of course more difficult to sustain long-term in Polish foreign policy. Um, I think an overall characterization after the Crimean crisis would be that the position of Poland and other Central European um, allies in NATO is a group of small and mid-sized states that are wedged between a stalled EU and a revisionist Russia, and they're relying for their security on a distracted United States. I think it's in the collective Western interest to see this kind of resharpened Central European security dilemma that the Poles feel, which Bartek was referring to, and the, the, broader, the broader pattern of a reactivated strategic frontier, I think it's in everyone's interest to see this effectively mitigated. Um, I think one positive effect of the Crimea crisis is that it amplifies or clarifies where Central Europe should fit for, US, for the United States as a global region. Um, I think in some ways it, it helps to bring an end to what's been a somewhat unnatural 25-year exclusion of this region from serious U.S. strategy. There's been an almost theological character to the discussion about Central and uh, Eastern Europe and Washington since the Cold War, um, a suspension of the normal dimensions of security that I think has hampered serious efforts to do what's needed in this region from a geostrategic sta- uh, standpoint. And I, help, I think that that's one of many factors that helped to create the vacuum and the vulnerability that Putin is now responding to. Um, you, the Ukraine crisis... I think over time should place Central Europe where it properly b- belongs in U.S. foreign policy thinking um, as one of the handful of global regions which, in which local outcomes uh, can determine uh, global power relationships over time. Um, what's imperative after Crimea, I think, is to, to permanently and effectively close off the east-central portion of, the, of, of Europe from the return of active geopolitics to the extent possible. I think – we did that fairly effectively after 1989 in, in, in ideological terms. I don't think we did that good of a job in, in uh, uh, traditional geopolitical or, or military terms. What's needed after Crimea, I think, is, is strategy and not just crisis management. I'm not going to talk at length about the different crisis management efforts that are underway by the administration or the validity of them or how they're working or not working. I'll just say uh, uh, that the strategic goal, I think, at this point is fairly clear and should be twofold. Uh, first of all, to create an effective deterrent against Russian opportunistic revisionism in Central and Eastern Europe, and secondly, to address the roots of political vulnerability in Eastern member states of NATO. Some practical ideas on these. Um, on the first, I think we have to end the two-tier structure of the NATO alliance. I think the original sin of NATO after Eastern enlargement was that there were essentially different terms of membership for the incoming member states and those who had been in the alliance for a longer period of time. Um, for states who, for those states who entered after 1989 and 1990, um, th- receiving Article 5 without the embodiment of that commitment in hard power terms, it's a little bit like receiving benediction without sacraments. I mean, it's a, it, it just doesn't it doesn't work uh, depending on, on on your approach. But it's um, I think no. The bottom line is that no alliance can survive for very long. Uh, if in, in that kind of mode, if it is creatively challenged. And I think the Russian strategy at the moment um, is doing just that. I think it's creatively challenging that on, on a, a number of bases. It's essentially the pattern of a quick land grab that creates a political fait accompli. And it's interesting, just as an aside, if you compare the Russian military um, uh, approach to the, the conflict in Georgia and that in Ukraine, 
The pattern that emerges is actually quite clever from the position of a, a power in Russia's position that's actually militarily quite weak in the big scheme of things. Um, that you take a relatively small military force with limited objectives, you move into a, a country with, a, with um, some residual ethnic population or, or territorial claim, um, you go in on, on, uh, within, the, within a very short period of time, and then you stop, and you wait on inevitable Western disunity to kick in. And you, can just, you almost can picture this as a caricature, you know, and Ukraine is actually a great example. On day one, all of the Western alliance is unified in saying, this is outrageous, it cannot stand. On day two, everyone says this is outrageous, it cannot stand, but there's the Frenchman in the corner who's saying, but can't we also talk? And then by day three, the Germans are proposing a working group, and, um, and, and this, is, this was the classic pattern after Georgia. It's the pattern after Ukraine, and I think it's a, it's a dangerous precedent worth paying attention to from a Western alliance standpoint with the, with the Baltic states primarily in mind. Um, I think the, the assumption that extended nuclear deterrence um, c- could guard against Crimea-style land grabs, I think it's, it, it, it can't. I think it's, uh, it simply won't work. What, we, what I would argue for is a preclusive strategy that raises the military costs of adventurism in Central Europe and particularly in the Baltic states. Um, I think that means some things that are more politically palatable than others. I think it means strengthening the conventional deterrent by placing NATO infrastructure and personnel in Central Europe, uh, doing in Central Europe what the United States has been doing uh, for some time now vis-a-vis allies in East Asia, creating defensive no-go zones, access denial bubbles that would counter Russian military incursions. Um, I don't think it's inappropriate to begin reconsidering on the basis of the Russian um, res- Russia's rescinding of the terms of uh, the 1997 Budapest Man- Memorandum. I don't think it's um, inappropriate at this point to begin reconsidering the post-1997 self-imposed moratorium uh, under the NATO-Russia Founding Act on placing tactical nuclear weapons on the member state of, uh, on the on the uh, territory of Central European member states. A second broad area of focus, I think, as part of a strategy should be we, we need the active geopoliticization of American energy resources. Um, there are a few methods at the U.S. disposal for immediately alleviating Central European energy pressure uh, uh, or Central European exposure to Russian energy pressure. Um, liquefied natural gas, I think, is, is seen at the moment by most people in the expert community in Washington – as a long-term rather than a short-term solution. And that's true in terms of delivery. But I think the political signaling on LNG can, ha- can have an immediate effect. Uh, the key is to shift expectations of future supplies. The U.S. can signal LNG export availability by simplifying conditions for export. Um, for example, an executive order by the president temporarily removing the Department of Energy from the LNG export permit review process. I think steps like this would improve access to capital for completion of, of LNG terminals in Central Europe and would shift the psychology of Russian oligarchs on the sustainability of their long-term leverage, again, in what is ultimately overall a very weak geopolitical position that the Russians have. I would just close by saying I think the key in both military and energy terms is that we do need a strategy. Um, the Western community, I think we've been depriving ourselves of some very natural strengths for a number of years, and that helped to create the conditions in which Russian revisionism would thrive. We've allowed deep erosions into the post-1989 order. Ukraine is now the second of two prices that we've had to pay for that. I think Crimea is a wake-up call. I think we should listen to that wake-up call so the next move is not somewhere closer to home uh, in, say, the Baltic states. Uh, I think the crisis was a calamity, 
but we can use it as an impetus to do some things that are long overdue, consolidating NATO and getting serious about Central Europe and U.S. strategy. Thank you, Wes. Uh, sure. Because we, we do not disagree with Wes, uh, I only said that we've got some disagreements with Germany, sometimes fundamental, uh, but we also assume in Poland that you can do nothing in Europe without Germany on board. Uh, so this is, uh, it will last until we, until we have the change of government. So until we've got reasonable government, this is the policy. And second, I would say that in Central and Eastern Europe, we are probably much, much closer to U.S. stance towards Russia than to Western Europe. Right. So, so Wes, I just wanted to ask you uh, something here. It sounds like you would agree with George Kennan's uh, statement that Soviet power is highly sensitive to, logic, to the logic of force. For this reason, it can easily withdraw and usually does when strong resistance is encountered at any point. Thus, if the adversary has sufficient force and makes clear his readiness to use it, he rarely has to do so. so I would if, agree if, with that. I think we've created a, a very permissive geostrategic environment. And um, while the, so, the ultimate sources, domestic or geopolitical, of, of Putin's um, – his motives are probably manifold, I think we have to start with what we can control. There's a lot that we can't control. Um, but in this, if uh, after Crimea there is no effective reinforcement of, uh, in real power terms, of NATO's position in the Central European member states of NATO, um, I think we should expect to see in the future an environment in which there would be no effective check on the Russians contemplating a similar move as Georgia and Crimea in a member of the NATO alliance in one of the Baltic states. Right. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question related to that, but open it up to the whole panel just for a quick response from whoever wants to jump in. And then we're going to turn it over uh, to you. We have about uh, half an hour or so for, uh, for, for questions. So maybe we can go ahead and, and, and get ready on the audience side for that. Uh, the question open to everyone is, uh, is this. Is it, is, it, um, is it possible for greater cooperation among countries within Central Eastern Europe like the four? Uh, it seems that it is. And is this because uh, the U.S. has been seen to withdraw, or is it more because of EU um, logger jams, uh, or is it simply a changing environment um, uh, for which Central Eastern Europe is particularly well suited to, uh, to play a key role? I may Bart, you. Sure. No, I, I also wanted to ask a question to, to my panelists. Uh, do you think that this is a problem of Putin's Russia, or this is a problem of Russia? Because in Poland, there is a very interesting discussion going on. What's then? What next? Uh, and uh, I would argue that the fascinating also uh, historical roots is that in Russia, never ever in the history, you had a single case uh, of bottom-up modernization. The modernization in Russia was always enforced, like under Peter I, Europeanization. Uh, the modernization was done through revolution or through territorial expansion. So uh, is this a case that it, it may happen anytime soon in Russia, after Putin? Thank you. So, so there you have. This is, this is, this is for Vladimir. For yeah, this is my question. You have two questions on the table. Quickly, an, an, answer either one you'd like. Yes, no answers. Yeah. 
Vladimir, you want to? Question, probably, right? Do you want to go over the first question and then I'll address this? Well, I didn't have a major response. I wasn't clear about your question about Central Europe in terms of Central European cooperation. So or organizations like V4, uh, which had for years been uh, stalled, uh, now coming together and, for instance, uh, trying to get the United States more interested in energy security for the region. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say very brief, briefly, and maybe Wes can say more. There's, there's a number of things they can do, but it's not, it's not a security organization. It's not an economic organization. It's not that coherent uh, a body that, it, that will have major influence. Um, you know, with, without the major EU powers, the EU will not act coherently. And without the United States, NATO will not act coherently. So even though these countries, if you put them all together, from Estonia down to Bulgaria, amount to a sizable chunk of the population of the EU, their influence isn't as great as that uh, sector of the population, of, as that proportion of the population would warrant. So I, I, I don't quite see they can issue statements, they can, they can try and pull the EU into, into imposing stiffer sanctions against Moscow, they can influence NATO, as, as Wes was saying, in terms of bringing in infrastructure and other in other ways, but left on their own, I don't think they can do much. Russia's policy has been to try and isolate these countries from the rest of Europe. This is why I think Poland's approach under Tusk has been fairly effective, but during a time of non-crisis. The question is, how effective will it be during a time of crisis? And we're begin beginning to see those fissures now in that Polish-German uh, approach. Let me, let me add one more thing, uh, <coughs> which was my experience in, in government, that uh, depending on the... Uh, on the political ambitions of the uh, of the country, uh, who was uh, the rotational president of the of the V4 countries, uh, it it might change significantly how active the uh, the the V4 uh, uh, countries were, and uh, that's one thing. The other is that there have been areas where uh, there was a far more significant uh, regular contact uh, among the four countries and uh, try to, uh, for instance, energy was one of them, where uh, they, they wanted to, uh, to harmonize their uh, views, their policies, but I agree with the Anush's po position that this is not a kind of organization which can really, uh, 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 which can really um, uh, do the same kind of, uh, of approach and, and produce the same kind of results as a, uh, as a very formalized uh, uh, and, uh, uh, organization with resources. Wes, did you want to respond sure. to Janusz? Sure. I agree wholeheartedly with what Janusz said. I think um, you know, these are this is a set of countries that you shouldn't expect too much of in a cooperative or a formal sense. Um, similar histories, uh, geographic proximity, some, some very significant things they can effectively do together. But at heart, I think it's, an or, it's a grouping that reflects different threat perceptions, also has considerably different power capabilities. Um, Poland's position on the North Central European plain is far more vulnerable than the Czech Republic's position in the Bohemian Highlands or uh, even the, um, the Hungarian position geographically, and I think that that matters tremendously. Yep. I also think there's a bit of a tension from a Polish foreign policy perspective in that um, there's, there's a need for enough uh, investment in Visegrad as a grouping to be able to use it where you can on things like energy security, but not so much that it precludes effective cooperation in, say, a Weimar setting. I think it's very telling for... For example, that Kathy Ashton in sending Radek Sikorsky to um, Kiev, uh, it was a German and a Russian, a German and a Frenchman that he took along with him, rather than Visegraders. And I think that this this makes the point. Hmm. So then, still a role for NATO to play in the region. Definitely. Yep. 
Okay, we'll turn it over uh, to the... Uh, oh, Vladimir, yeah. sorry. Post-Putin era. Of yeah. course, yeah, sure. yeah. It's the Novak's question. Thank you for the question. I think it's a very, um, it's a very good topic to, to focus on. And uh, a short answer, of course, it's, it's Putin's problem. It's the problem of Putin's regime. It's not a problem of Russia. Uh, when, when you say that change has only been done from, uh, from above... Um, you know, I, I beg to disagree because I remember um, August 1991 uh, in Moscow, and the Soviet regime didn't just leave on its own because it wanted to. It sent the tanks to the Russian capital. I mean, the same tanks that were in Budapest, in Prague, in Vilnius. In August 91, these tanks came to Moscow. Uh, and then you had half a million people come to the Moscow White House and stand in front of the tanks, and in three days, the Soviet regime was gone. So it's, it's not true to say that the, there was never change from below. The, um, of course, there's also a very direct link. I think it's it's probably fair to say that it's generally in history there's this link before a, a democratic, um, you know, domestic polity and, and a peaceful foreign policy. But it's certainly true of Russia. And when we had democratically elected government uh, in the 1990s, uh, the foreign policy was, was peaceful and accommodating and, and, and good neighborly, I think, to an extent that we can expect. Um, it, this goes to a deeper philosophical question, and uh, or just it's, it's a whole separate issue. But I just want to add that, you know, unfortunately we haven't had uh, that many times when we had a free election held in Russia. Uh, but every time we did, uh, the forces of totalitarianism always lost to the forces of democracy. Be it in 1906, in the first Duma elections, when the, the Tsarist autocracy supported candidates, didn't get a single seat, and the Constitutional Democrats won uh, that election. Uh, be it in 1917, when the Bolsheviks lost elections to the Constituent Assembly, and of course then they went to disperse it by force because they lost the election. Or in 91, when uh, the then opposition candidate Boris Yeltsin beat the communists by, I think it was 57% to 17 in the first round. So every time we did have a free election, it was not. So it's, I think it's a very wrong stereotype that, you know, Russians are not ready for democracy. This is, I think that's, that's a fundamentally, you know, insulting and, and, and invalid argument. But uh, I think Janusz has made a very important point just a second ago that, you know, just as in, in early 1991, many respected analysts said, you know, the Soviet Union is going to last forever. Nobody... Uh, not nobody, but many people were, you know, couldn't even admit that possibility. And of course, in a few months' time, it was gone. Um, I think what Janusz said is very important. It's it's now time is now um, for policy analysts, you know, in 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 the West to start thinking of what uh, a post-Putin Russia will be and what its policies will be, because there will be, of course, a post-Putin Russia. And uh, it looks like the timetable is being dramatically sped up by all these actions of of the regime, both in foreign and in domestic policy. And um, uh, I think it's important to hear more what the current opposition leaders are saying and thinking, you know, people who led these 100,000 strong protests on Balotna in December 2011 and, and February 2012. I think it's important to, to hear that message more. And uh, so, so thanks for the question. I think it's, 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 a really, um, it's a really timely topic to begin discussing now as opposed to when it happens and everybody's scrambling to, you know, to see who is in the new Russian government and what the policies will be. I would just uh, very quickly add that I fully agree with uh, what Vladimir said. In the crisis that is now in Ukraine, we've seen a lot of support from Russian citizens for the Ukrainian effort. And you see that on Facebook, on social media, in the arts, and so forth and so on. And uh, there is a generation of young, cool, very savvy people in Russia who are well-educated, who have traveled the world, who wants to see a different Russia. And I think together with Ukraine as perhaps an inspiration, they will achieve that. I don't think Putin will last forever. I mean, people people invariably are weakest when we think that they're strongest. And, uh, and the 21st century is throwing Putin a set of challenges that he can meet only up to a point. 
even during the brief presidency of Medvedev, we saw lame efforts at modernity. People made fun of him, but he expressed certain things that are really very necessary and needed. He wanted to create a Silicon Valley. He wanted this, he wanted that. Things that are very necessary and in some way, I think, are beginning, burgeoning very, very, you know, on a small level in Russia. I think given, given the right set of circumstances and given real freedom, Russia will be a great surprise to very many people. Wonderful. Thank you. So we'll uh, have questions from the audience. If you would, just uh, keep your questions short, and please uh, let us know your name and affiliation. I think the ambassador had a hand up first. And maybe you'd also want to address it to uh, someone on the panel. Okay, you. Um, uh, I was practically agreed with every word what Janusz said, but the most important thing that he said was that it shouldn't have come as a surprise, and um, Ukraine, and uh, I don't assume that everybody reads your book or books. If had there, they shouldn't have come to a surprise. But I tell you what another wake-up call should have been already. And here comes what Tomasz said about the mix, mixed signals that uh, came out from the West and particularly from the United States. Um, we can call it Libya, Syria, reduction of, of uh, uh, um, Pentagon expenditure, defense expenditures, etc. And I remember very well, I just happened to be in the White House the day after Putin uh, wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. And uh, we discussed it and I said, for me, it means it's not a message to, to the Americans. It's a message to the whole world. Here I am. Count me in. So that was a very, very, very clear signal. Now, so we all say this is not a wake-up call, let's say. Um, and we think that Putin is not going to stop here. It will go further on. And um, I, again, have to recall my experience of 1956 in Hungary because I happened to be there. That's when I left Hungary. And um, the high emotions of the people sending flowers to the soldiers, that doesn't do the trick against tanks when they come in and sheer force when it comes in. And I also reminded what Lech Lakvalensovoy once said to the Western democracies, Western democracies don't go to war, war comes to them. Now my question is, um, are we ready to show force, as Wes uh, uh, suggested. And in this case, the United States has to lead because even together France, Germany, and the UK can do that, even if they were entirely united. The United States has to show uh, leadership in this. And my question to the panel is, do you think that the administration and the Congress is ready to show toughness and leadership in this case? I think it's a really important question that probably warrants a, a, a response, even if it's very quick, from, from everyone, because um, this is, I, th I think, one of the most obvious questions. A very quick response. Um, yes, we need to show force. We need to show resolve. This needs to be specified as the NATO mission, not only to defend the members, but to defend its borders properly, adequately, completely. 
And Wes outlined some of the steps in terms of infrastructure, um, territorial defense, missile defense, and so on. But I think beyond that, given this current crisis, because that's not enough, we need to help Ukraine. We need to help the Ukrainian government to build a credible, competent military force, which they're in the process of doing. We need to give them aid. We need to give them resources. We need to train them where possible. We need to show that we are committed to Ukraine's independence. And the only way to ensure independence and territorial integrity is to have a military that ensures that independence and territorial integrity. We've learned that in the region of Central Europe for many, many centuries. You know, we don't have the comfort of living in France or, the, or, 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 or um, Spain or Portugal. Mm-hmm. Secondly, is our administration ready? I think members of Congress, some members, probably in, increasing number of members of Congress are ready. Whether the administration uh, is ready, I think it's catching up. Uh, I think they had a rude awakening that the reset was not only, it's not only over, but it was laughed at in, in Moscow, that they cannot approach Putin uh, by having one hand tied behind their backs because he will snatch your hand and uh, tie you up, and which is what Ukraine has seen. So I would say part of, the, part of our Congress is probably ready. The administration at this point is not, but we need to help them to understand what, what best needs to be done. Right, Bart? Uh, I wish, Janusz, your, your words were actions, but I don't believe in it. Uh, I think that actually the U.S. is overstretched, and uh, you see both in the Republican and Democrat Party that they all say that it is unrealistic. Uh, uh, and I would say that the response lays in Europe. Uh, but the trouble is that 80% of European soldiers are not deployable out of the territory of their own country. But there is much, this is a bigger number of soldiers than in the U.S. So I, we are not in the age when the U.S. must rescue Europe again. Uh, it has changed. And, well, this is the trouble of strategic weakness of Europe and the culture of military restraint in Germany. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. That's my my brief answer. Uh, The European Union is not a kind of organization which can very quickly, easily, and effectively develop such uh, political decisions and then uh, uh, create the conditions for executing such uh, difficult, very costly uh, political decisions like a military action. Just take the go back in time and take the example of Yugoslavia, Bosnia, then go to Libya, which was a very uh, – so you need – I fully agree with uh, – uh, in your question, there was an answer, of course. I fully agree with that, that, uh, that it has to be one, uh, a country which can provide this resolve and can, has the resources to uh, – and has the political leverage uh, over towards the uh, European Union as well to provide such a leadership. And there is only one country on earth that uh, can be in this position, that's the United States – that the U.S. is ready, willing, uh, has the public opinion support uh, behind Congress or, or, or the administration to, uh, to do such thing, to engage the, this country in a kind of uh, uh, not necessarily direct war, but uh, in a kind of uh, military threat type of situation with Russia, not with uh, a, a, a tiny, tiny country, or, or launching war on terrorism, which is very significant, very important, but this is a different kind of 
military conflict if if it occurs or if it develops. So that's one thing. The other is uh, I would definitely uh, uh, make a distinction between uh, those countries, regardless of their self-perception and their uh, feeling about their vulnerability, including military vulnerability. I would make a distinction between uh, already NATO member countries of, uh, of East Central Europe and those uh, former Soviet republics that are not uh, uh, among the uh, uh, within NATO, which is a significantly different uh, uh, political situ a military um, uh, situation. And thirdly, uh, the, one of the uh, one of the problems uh, uh, we have, uh, I think, is that uh, we don't have the uh, the uh, necessary mechanisms um, designed and adjusted to the uh, post Cold War era. If uh, if there is a uh, a kind of return to the uh, Cold War logic, as I as I as I said in my opening remarks. So it's still the same old logic. There has to be one country which is big enough and has the resolve uh, to move ahead. Wes, well, I I agree with Thomas. I think only the United States can. I don't I don't know that in our current political temperament we would, depending on the stakes. Um, the, I'm going to invoke invoke Churchill, who said. Never criticize your government when abroad, never cease to do so when at home, um, and say some very critical things of our administration. I think that we have a lot of um, legitimate blame to place at the doorstep of the current political leadership in the United States for the crisis that we've seen in Crimea. Um, stunningly self-delusional. And I mean, I think the posture that we've taken in the last five years, you may be right, Bartek, we may be overstretched. We're not overstretched to such an extent like a late-phase British empire. Uh, we're, not, we're not so overstretched that we could not conventionally deter an abysmally weak military Russia from attacking the Baltic states. Um, this is purely political. This is not material. This is not military strategic in the, in the least. I think the question that the ambassador asked is the organizing strategic question of our era. I think it's the question that the Taiwanese are asking, the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Israelis. I think it's questions that U.S. allies across the globe are asking. I think they were already asking that before Crimea, but I think that they're, they're now a lot more people are asking that question. I think the false red lines of incidents like um, Syria, if you think of Russia as uh, – given its, its actual structural weakness as a great power or, or a near great power – Imagine in five years' time what, what Rush, the Russians, through just having you know good poker face and use and, and, a, and a unified decision-making structure, look at what they've done for their global position. Um, they've they've reinserted themselves as an arbiter of outcomes in the Middle East, with Syria and with Iran. How is this even how is this even possible on the basis of Russian strings? Um, for a decade, I've heard repeatedly in dinner conversations in Washington, there's always someone at the table when you talk about Central Europe that says, ah. Oh, don't talk about security. Don't talk about strategy. Russia is weak. Yes, it is weak. It's weak in absolute terms. It's not weak in relative terms vis-a-vis -vis the Baltic states or Ukraine or Poland. And therein lies the heart of the matter. I think if sufficient – in a sufficiently high-intensity escalatory conflict, the United States would act. I think Article 5 is full faith and credit even under the current political leadership if the stakes are high enough and if the escalation is high-intensity. What concerns me are low-intensity, quick, re opportunistic revisionists, low-cost revisionist land grabs like Crimea, like Georgia, possibly like South China Sea in the not-so-distant future. 
a scenario in which you move in with the assets that you do have using local military superiority, and you create a fait accompli, and you wait. And you wait for a, a, a degree of political willpower on the part of the West, on the part of the United States, to act that will never come. And that's what I think will make the next three years one of the most unprecedentedly dangerous in the history of United States strategic global posture. I couldn't agree more. And, and it's also tolerating these low-cost um, um, victories uh, on behalf of Russia and other actors that is somehow shaping our own political culture within the United States in terms of uh, security action. So on, on this question, uh, Link, Lincoln's words ring true that public sentiment is everything. Hey, Vladimir, um, and then we'll take another question from the audience. Thank you, Ambassador. Thanks for the question. And I would, um, I think I would, I would agree with, with what Janusz said. And, and it's, it's not news that Congress has been much more active and much less accommodationist to, to, to these regimes, not just Putin's, but others. And if, if you recall when the Magnitsky Act was being discussed uh, in 2011, 2012, the administration, uh, uh, this current administration was dead set against it. In fact, they announced it openly. There's no, no secret about it. They, they announced publicly for the first time in history of all U.S. administrations that there will be no linkage between the questions of trade and the questions of human rights. It's never been announced before. It's been done before, but it's not been announced publicly. Um, because, of course, that was, if you recall, the Magnitsky Act was attached to the repeal of the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which is what everybody um, supported, all the opposition forces in Russia, because that removed sanctions against the country and introduced those personal, personal sanction, sanctions against the crooks and the human rights abusers that I talked about. So the only reason the Magnitsky Act is in existence is because it received more than 80% of the vote in the House and more than 90% of the votes in the U.S. Senate, which is a rare thing these days in, you know, in its own right. Um, so it's, it's not surprising that now we see much more readiness for action on, on, on Capitol Hill than we do in the White House. But I think uh, events are happening in a way that even you know, the former reset chicks in the, in the administration will just have to admit the obvious. And uh, that executive order that the president signed a few days ago about um, allowing for the possibility of visa and asset uh, sanctions against those involved in the aggression against Ukraine, that's a very hopeful step. So. You know, hopefully even, even uh, those kind of sentiments can be countered by what's actually happening in reality. So um, I'm fairly optimistic about that. Let's get another question here. Is there any question? Must be bedtime. I think, I think we've exhausted the subject. <laughs> oh, no, there's one here. Um, after the war in Kosovo, Russia, Russia's slogan was, we don't like the new NATO, we want the old NATO. And uh, from the discussion today and from what I'm seeing around us, we're going to have a lot more of the old NATO. Um, for better and for worse, I, I like both NATOs myself, uh, and I hope we combine the two. And I think the counterposition's been unfortunate. Uh, I share a lot of the pessimistic sentiments expressed about this administration and its policies. I do remember Afghanistan was a turnaround time for Carter and the whole country in 1979. Uh, to some extent, this could be a turnaround time. And if one recalls, it meant a turnaround from a decade of debating about reducing the military budget to a debate about increasing the military budget. Uh, and many other turnarounds alongside it. We could also discuss a turnaround from a debate about reducing American forces in Europe to increasing the stationing of forces in Europe, which is a ridiculously understationed, even if there were not a threat from the east, but merely from the south, from the Middle East. Where better to station them than in Europe? Texas? And, so, and the question? So, uh, <laughs> it's late in the day. 
I wonder if the, our Central and Eastern European colleagues could look a bit more to NATO with a bit less pessimism and a bit more of a thought of structuring the debate uh, for making this a turnaround moment uh, and perhaps a bit less of following the media trends in, in terms of their beliefs in overextension. Da, da, da. I know not, not everyone was saying that, but some were. Uh, it seems to me that there is more constructively to be done. Uh, good question. Why don't we go ahead and turn that into closing statements from everyone, start with Wes and come this way. Well, I think I, I've said quite a lot. I, um, I think I would just, um, if I had to sum up, would say that um, the period after the Georgia War, I think, set in motion some trends among U.S. allies in Central Europe um, uh, that, were, that were the result of ripples of insecurity from how the West and how the United States responded to, to Georgia. We're now fast-forwarding five years. It's another crisis on a, with, with different stakes. And I think we have an, it, it, it is a calamity, but I think it's also an opportunity to think um, afresh about what we're doing with NATO, how it's structured, the strategic intentionality, um, how we manage our relations with countries like Poland um, is very closely watched by U.S. allies in other regions as um, an indicator, a barometer for our global strategic intentionality. And I, my hope, if I, ha if I could end on a, a, posi a, a positive, an optimistic note, would be that the post, um, this post-ISAF setting in NATO, um, the upcoming NATO summit, as, as Janusz alluded to, um, I hope that that will be used as an opportunity to um, re-articulate a vision for the alliance that actually matches it to the core needs of our time, which are not ex expeditionary war fighting. I think it's very, very much where Polish doctrine is now headed in the direction of territorial defense. Well, Poland, Poland again believes in NATO because like two or three years ago, there was a big decline of support and it was on the really bottom level. Uh, but I would refer to the discussion when there was Afghanistan and this was quite common that everybody said about Afghanistan that this is the test for NATO. And Poland did everything to reframe the debate that this is the task for NATO. <laughs> and happily, we managed to do this. Uh, uh, but honestly, uh, this, I, this situation may be the test for NATO. Thank you. I hope it will pass. I suppose every crisis is a test for NATO, for the US, for the world to some extent. Um, whether America likes it or not, it remains a global leader, and uh, Ukrainians in this particular situation are looking to America to, to lead. And um, I will maybe slightly disagree with my colleagues on this panel. Uh, America has provided a great deal of support to the Ukrainians. Um, yesterday, the prime minister said that he was very pleased with um, with the kind of support that he's been getting. Now, mind you, that may have been diplomatese. He certainly can't come out and say that, uh, you know, why aren't, why aren't you bombing Russia and why aren't you protecting us in a more eff effective or efficient way? The fact of the matter is, is that the world is changing and we live in a very, very dangerous time where small challenges are often more dangerous than great cataclysmic world wars. And we've seen this in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, 
NATO, America, the EU have to find it within themselves to meet these challenges. I don't know what the formulas are. I really don't know what um, uh, what the right set of elements has to be uh, to meet all of these challenges uh, successfully. The fact of the matter is that NATO has provided Europe with security and peace for a very, very long time, and I trust that it will continue to do so. I think that peace will be much stronger and much more deeply rooted if Ukraine's in NATO. Um, thanks for the question, and we've been saying for many years, you know, arguing against those proponents of the, of the reset that, you know, it's just a different mindset that you have to understand, that dictators don't take concessions as, uh, you know, as, as a motive to reciprocate and make uh, concessions back. They take it as weakness, and they, and they move forward, and they move more aggressively forward. Unfortunately, it took this to, uh, to make a lot of people in Western capitals realize that um, you know, maybe it could have been avoided if, if, if there was some more principled approach to, to Putin's regime earlier. But you know, better late than never. And um, I think in the end, the, the answer, of course, lies in, uh, in Moscow. And it's, uh, as, as we've discussed earlier, this outward aggression is a direct result um, of, um, of what's happening inside Russia. And, and again, I just want to leave this message. You know, it's, not, it's not a question of Russia. It's the question of an unelected authoritarian regime in the Kremlin that's doing this. And um, just finally, it's, your question is more with, with the strategic and military posturing, but I think there are, you know, there are other ways. That it's not just a question of either fully accommodating and appeasing or having a war. There is, there is a golden middle, and that golden middle, um, I think, is, is both to target uh, those directly responsible with visa sanctions and asset freezes, and on the other hand, it's helping Russian civil society. Uh, and what's becoming especially important is access to information with, with these events of the past two or three hours when now most of the independent news websites have been blocked uh, by the order of the Russian government. Um, I see uh, Kevin Close in this, uh, in this hall who's done um, an amazing job in the last uh, year literally resuscitating the uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty Russian service, Radio Svoboda, from, from the ashes. And uh, we won't go into what brought it there, but he's done a, a, an amazing job of doing it. And I think it's as uh, you know, the information is being squeezed. I think it's it's very important to have what's being called you know soft power these days to have these th these alternative uh, means of information. Uh, and unfortunately, we're back to these uh, to the to having the importance of Russian language broadcast from the West increased. And uh, and and I'm hoping that um, Western leaders take notice of that. Uh, and uh, to end also on an optimistic note, like my colleagues have, I think it's just a question of time. We're seeing we're seeing increasing impatience among educated, younger, urban, middle-class Russians with this corrupt and repressive regime. And it's just a question of time uh, when we have uh, democracy in our country again. It's, and, and hopefully the outside world uh, uh, takes uh, wise steps uh, to, to, uh, to make that happen as opposed to hampering that development. Thank you. Yeah, to answer your question directly, I would say I'm both relatively optimistic but less optimistic about some other factors. I'm relatively optimistic that we... In other words, NATO does have the capabilities to defend the allies and to project security into the wider Europe, including Ukraine. But I'm less than optimistic that our leaders currently both understand the challenge that faces them and are willing to implement the kind of policies to meet that challenge. That's, that's the way I would put it. Uh, I, basically, I wanted to say the same thing. Uh, it's not about optimism or pessimism, uh, I think. Uh, uh, at least on my side. Uh, this year is the 15th anniversary of NATO accession. 
for East Central Europe. So uh, we are in April. We will celebrate the 50th anniversary of that. And uh, uh, it's a fact. Uh, the, the real question, I think, is credibility, number one, and uh, number two, commitment uh, uh, to follow through. And uh, this is what has been uh, weakened in the past uh, um, decade or so in this regard. It's not the question whether the uh, Article 5 is suitable or not. It is suitable. And I, I don't see uh, you know, the significant military threat to, uh, to NATO or any NATO member. However, uh, there is the threat of this, the uh, permanent destabilization uh, by foreign powers. Uh, and if, it's, if, if this power is Russia, uh, then it is uh, even more difficult to handle. Thank you all for a wonderful panel. I think not only should the audience um, uh, applause in appreciation for the panel, but we should uh, applause for the audience slugging it through with us here. I believe we have some concluding remarks from the uh, sponsors here. For those of you who are here at uh, 9.15 this morning, I'm Ken Weinstein, uh, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. It's really been a remarkable day of absolutely extraordinary uh, presentations. And the last, last panel, I, I don't think I've ever seen a seven-person panel in Washington. And a seven-person panel that was seven, right? six, well, six with moderator, but... Uh, yeah, six with moderator adding insights as well. But it, and everyone had something uh, unique and important to add. This has uh, been a uh, each of the sessions has been extraordinarily en enlightening. Uh, this is obviously a moment of uh, deep crisis, deep crisis not just for the people of Ukraine but also for the uh, transatlantic alliance. And we at Hudson were delighted to be able to partner with uh, the Danube Institute uh, on this uh, very important uh, issue. I want to thank uh, my colleague Richard Weitz, who's been carrying much of the load uh, for the conference on our side. also want to thank Adam uh, Lowe as well from and our communications staff, and also want to especially uh, acknowledge uh, Ambassador Zapari for all that uh, he's done uh, for us today. So with that, let me turn it over to John, and we will uh, wrap things up and uh, send everyone on their merry way. Ken, thank you very much indeed. Um, and I just want to reiterate some of the thanks. Uh, this morning we said, uh, first of all, let me say, by the way, I think the whole conference was, for me, enormously fascinating. But this panel was outstandingly interesting. You've been going at it for two and a half hours. And frankly, I never felt sleepy once, which, considering we just <laughs> had lunch, is remarkable. Um, secondly, I want to thank... Uh, I have to begin with the ambassador. Uh, the, the conference was conceived in a conversation between us um, back just before Christmas, and um, I, uh, the embassy and the ambassador have been helpful at every stage of the game, and we, I want to pay a tribute to you and your staff. Thank you. Secondly, I then uh, went to, approached Ken and uh, after our discussion, and he said yes right away, and again, he and Richard have been enormously helpful since. I have to, we, we have to also add... Paula Dobriansky. She was the first person who accepted our invitation to be a speaker, but she wasn't just a speaker. She suggested many other speakers, and she reached out to them on our behalf. So Paula can't be here. She's got to attend a St. Patrick's Day dinner, but um, but she is. Uh, but she, we, we really, uh, we will pass on your thanks to her. And finally, I want to say um, that. that 
On behalf of my colleagues at the <laughs> Danube Institute, this has been a great pleasure working again with old friends here. But if ever anything justified uh, the foundation of the Institute at a particularly appropriate time, it's, it's this conversation. What has emerged from this conversation, particularly in the last two hours, has been that Yes, on the one hand, you can say that the Allies are not always working because of economic dependency or that there is some um, military restraint in Germany because of its past or whatever. When it com what it comes down to is on both sides of the Atlantic there are problems with the political culture that's, that determines so many of all these decisions. The political cultures have diverged and that we need to bring them together. And secondly, there are faults in both political cultures that prevent the appropriate response to a crisis of this magnitude. I share Do Dr. Strauss's hope that the crisis will prove to have the same impact on the alliance of bringing it together that the invasion of um, Afghanistan did in, in 19, uh, uh, 1979. Um, because it's certainly a crisis of similar magnitude on this occasion. Uh, we established ourselves in the hope of getting the being a transmission belt for ideas which across the Atlantic this afternoon demonstrated that we've made a very good start. So I'd like to thank the panel, I'd like to thank Ken, I'd like to thank the ambassador, and I'd like to thank you for being here and for being such a lively and responsive audience. Thank you. <laughs>